Welcome to Revolution Solution, providing you with solutions for your revolution to be a free person in an unfree world. Join us in our pursuit of sovereignty through permaculture, technology, and community. Welcome back to Revolution Solution. This is Jared, the Fermi Guy. I am joined tonight by the one and only Jake Lindsay of Childerberg and Tasting Anarchy to talk about the fourth turning, generational theory, a bit of speculating and having fun because I finally finished the fourth turning book and just want to discuss it with somebody else who's read it. How are you doing tonight, Jake? Not too bad. I, I accidentally clicked the other link that you sent me and it was playing in the background. And I was like, why is there this echo? <laughs> <laughs> so you're the one viewer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I paused it. <laughs> I was about to say no pressure because I didn't expect any viewers. But if you're viewing, then we have one. But still yeah. no pressure. <laughs> no, no problem at all. Yeah, things are going well. Um, just, you know, living life, living the dream, I guess. Uh, not not much going on here. I, I do have a little bit of Childerberg news if you want. Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to start with that. So I've I've been I, I've had some difficulties with Mule Shoe Bend, which is our previous location, to get them to allow us to do live music and live comedy on site. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to let me do it. I did find a new place that's about twenty minutes south of there that is also on the water, and uh, they are going to let me do it. So I've got a couple more details to work out for that, but we'll be moving Childerberg twenty minutes south. Um, it's actually a little bit closer to San Antonio for anybody who's in San Antonio. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of where we're at. I'm going to try to get a newsletter together this weekend and let everybody know the new location. Cool. Yeah. I expected it was about this time of year is usually the reservations go up for mule shoe. So I, I expected if we were still there, then we'd have news about now. Right. Yeah. And, and I, we decided not to do mule shoe. Just they, they were. I don't really want, I don't, I don't want to bad mouth them. They, they treated us well, but there was like weird stuff that was difficult for me to get them to agree to. So, mm-hmm. um, and I don't really understand why, but, uh, and I wasn't really able to get a clear answer why, but you know, that's just the way it is. Some, sometimes, and I'm, I'm happy that we're at the new place too, because it's, it's a private location, which it's so for us, it not being a government piece of land. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I think it'll work out better. Yeah, that's good. It seemed like there was always a lot of uh, nobody knew what the answer was for anything. Yeah, <laughs> well, and I think that that's kind of how they work. So this is actually we'll talk about this a little bit with with the the fourth turning because there were certain institutions put into place during the first turning of this seculum and uh, or this cycle, uh, and one of those was the. Uh, lower colorado river authority which was a depression era uh federal government project and they're in charge of the lower colorado river here in texas and uh their their whole look outlook or whatever their whole responsibility is not focused on camping they're they're in charge of dams basically Mm -hmm. and uh so they don't really care that much about the things that camping people have going on, but they own all of this land that yeah. they have campsites on. So the people that are 
in charge of those are usually retirees or part-time workers or something like that who kind of know what's up. Uh, they have to, they always have to send up the ladder to see and the people up, up top are like, well, we don't really want to deal with it. So <laughs> they just say, they just say no about it because it's, and I, and I kind of understand. I mean, it's like, it's, they don't care. Like they're like, look, I'm in charge of dams. It would be like, asking, right. you know, an oil engineer about campsites outside of the oil refinery. <laughs> but, but, yeah. And they're like, well, I don't give it, I don't care about that. So like, I, I want to refine oil. Well, that, they, that's what right. they, they just want to control dams. So. Right. But any, any non-government project, you would think if it's enough of a draw, they would appoint somebody to run that and make it yeah. the best that it could be. But being a right. governmental project, you don't have those expectations. That's true. Yeah. I don't, they don't, I don't think they have to care about, you know, they don't really, you know, they do kind of check people when they come in, but like theoretically at Muleshoe, you could just come in after they close the thing, never pay. And then, leave yeah. and, and that would be, and, and you know what, I, I've done that before when I, I've, I used to long distance bicycle ride. Yep. And uh, I've ridden my bicycle like from Southern Illinois to Northern Illinois. And there was a lot of places, but it wasn't that I was trying to avoid paying is I couldn't figure out who to pay. <laughs> so I, I'd get to these campsites and like the, nobody would be there or they'd have like a sign that would be like pay at booth. And you go over to the booth, there's nowhere to pay. And <laughs> so you're like, all right, well, I'm just going to set up a campsite. So, I mean, that's just kind of, I think how they operate. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it's something that can be set up. Like KOAs, I know. Yeah. I've I've stopped into KOAs way late at night when we were doing a cross-country road trip with four dudes just driving until, you know, we got to where there were four people who just couldn't stay awake any longer. We'd sure. pull into a KOA at 4 a.m. just to crash for a few hours. And, you know, they had a thing on the front, like just put the money in the envelope, drop the envelope in here, and here's the yeah. rate for a primitive site per body. And it was that simple. Yeah, and people, and people usually do that like one of the things you know to kind of get into the into the future i'd like to have land that we can do childerberg town on uh mm -hmm. and or childerberg the event but also childerberg town further on but um and it would my idea would be that so my wife and i've discussed this quite a bit is that like our next piece of property would it has to make money like our current house like it's nice that we live here and and we like our house and all that sort of stuff but uh i think the mind our mindset was not correct going into buying the house. Like it was in our, we were like, Oh, we're going to get this really nice big house and all this, all that kind of thing. But it's, uh, I, I think that if you want to build wealth, you got to have a kind of a different mindset, which is like, yeah, it would be nice to have all these luxuries and stuff like that. But the property that you get should be able to make you some money. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to necessarily break even, but it should generate some income. Yeah. Yeah. Be an asset rather than a liability. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where you now and I'm very grateful that we have the house because we were able to have refugees come from Ukraine and live with us and yeah. we had the space and that was very nice. But, uh, you know, it's just there, it's only my wife and I, we don't have kids or anything yet. And so it's just kind of like, well, it's sort of too big for, <laughs> for us. And, <laughs> and it's a lot of work, too. Like when you sure when you haven't been on, and this will, we'll talk about this a little bit with the fourth turning, too, is as millennials, we got into home ownership later than our parents. And so you don't realize how big of a uh like a chore it is to own a house like there you, you kind of have a concept of it like my dad told me about it before we bought the house he's like you know it's a lot of work and you know he was away in the iraq war the entire time i was growing up so i didn't really learn a lot of that stuff from him mm -hmm. uh but uh 
you know, he was kind of, he sort of was like, yeah, there's a lot of, it's a, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can figure it out. And, and I have figured out most of it, <laughs> but it's just, but this is stuff that when in my dad's generation, they just kind of learned on their own or they learned from their, their dads. Yeah. Uh, and for, I like, I'm actually kind of shocked at how many people my age don't know how to do even basic stuff that I know how to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always ashamed at how little I know how to do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, I think it was a Dan uh, or a George Carlin quote. It's like think think about how stupid the average person is, and then yeah. think again that half of them are stupider than that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's true. I mean, it's true. But that's uh, yeah. But that's what's going on. There's not, like I said, not much. Just kind of uh, I could I can ramble for hours because I'm a cocky <laughs> guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No worries. Um, all right. So I guess to jump into it, I did just an absolute shit job of an introduction last week. Um, okay. I thought that I could, it was, it was the first podcast I've done solo without a guest or anything. And I went in with no, no uh, outline. I just okay. thought I could, I thought I could talk and give an introduction and just yeah, like hard. <laughs> four, four takes later. I was like, this is the best that I've got. Go listen to professor CJ's episode yeah. about it. I, I can't compete with his uh, level of professionalism and just preparedness for an episode. Um, but I think that I've done a sufficient job of laying groundwork, just kind of going over terms and such. Um, so something that we've talked about and something that I still think about a good deal. Um, I can't remember which of the authors is still alive, but whichever one is still alive. Uh, how is still how. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Neil, Neil, how has, has pointed to the, financial crisis of 2008 as the start of the current crisis which yeah. all through reading the book i was surprised by because i didn't i didn't know that until a month or so after finishing the book and ruminating on it for a while mm -hmm. um all through reading it anytime they talk about the next crisis because it was written in the 90s i'm i'm thinking every time 2001 9 11 9 11 sure. it's got to be 9 11 like they talk about the crisis the start of the crisis being a generation defining event like if you were if you were too young for it, it didn't really have much of an impact on you. But if you were old enough to understand what was going on, you remember exactly what you were doing, what you were wearing, where you were at when this happened. Sure. Um, so that's that's stuck out to me as like what makes the most sense. But Neil Howe has been has been consistent and persistent yeah. with 2008 being the beginning of the crisis. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that um i mean i i would i would agree that 2008 uh, that since 2008 we are definitely in the crisis i think okay uh, yeah yeah so the he he's talked about this a little bit because somebody's he's asked this uh to him uh, is like what do you think about 9-11 and he says so th obviously the it's not like here's an event and then here's the new turning and here's there's it's kind of there's like a, a phase over and it really what he, the way that he addresses it is that it, it really is not the event. It's the age of the generations when the event happens. Yeah. And so if you're, there's a lot of millennials, I I'm an older millennial. Um, there's a lot of millennials who are younger than me mm -hmm. that are still millennials, but they really don't remember nine 11. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they kind of have like a vague recollection of it. They uh, obviously like my youngest sister is a good example of this. she's a millennial, but she doesn't remember a time when you could walk on the airplane without the the TSA. Right. Like, so 
like that type of thing where she's still my generation, but we're far enough on opposite ends of the spectrum of millennials that we don't, but she does remember 2008, the financial crisis. And personally, the financial crisis was much, much more impactful than 9-11 was to me. I remember 9-11 and I remember it being shocking, but when 2008 happened for me personally, I had just finished college. I had my, I was three weeks into my first full-time job. Uh, I, I distinctly remember sitting in the break room watching as the stock market plummeted and and just kind of going like, Oh, my parents had just moved to Hawaii. So I was alone in Virginia, no family. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember kind of going like, Oh wow. Like this is what, you know, Ron Paul's been talking about all this time. Like this is the end. This is the collapse of the empire. And so to me, that was much more defining than 9-11, which I was old enough to remember it. I was in eighth grade, but uh, it was, and it was impactful, but it was, and I, and like you say, I remember I was there and all that sort of stuff. And kind of the way that Howe talks about it a little bit in some of his interviews is that 9-11 definitely was the closing of the third turning. But because it's not like clear cut on when one starts and one ends there, it's sort of, it's clear that that the fourth turning was going on by 2008 and it's kind of clear that the third turning was over at 9-11 and there's okay. this kind of gap in between that is sort of both. Gotcha. It's, it's, it's the transition. And and I think that's a kind of a, a good way to work, look at it because if you think about, uh, especially the millennial generation, what, uh, what it's been like is it has been constant crisis. So since 2008, mm-hmm. it's just been thing after thing after thing after thing. And it's been this extreme, you know, a lot of people will disagree with this, but like it's an extreme polarization. So then they've done a lot of studies and stuff on this is like, it, it used to be that you would do these surveys and say like, who would you not want to live next door to? And a lot of times it was a race or it was a particular religion. None of that right. matters anymore. It's people don't want to live next to a Democrat or a Republican, depending on what okay. they are. Yeah. So it's, so this kind of the, the crisis period is characterized by this this extreme division uh and and like i've actually noticed it from myself like i'll be walking the dog and you know i'm i'm a libertarian anarchist i don't i don't really ascribe to either side but i live in texas i'm not a californian anymore and (laughs) i walk through my neighborhood and like this last election cycle there's just the amount of veto signs that were everywhere and i'm just kind of going in my head is like do i really want to live around people like this Mm. Like people mm-hmm. who want to come into my house and take my guns away, people who want to, you know, promote these things that I just don't agree with. Uh, and on the sort of the Republican side of it, I also don't agree with it, but I do feel a, a stronger kinship and affection with people who had Abbott signs in their yard. Sure. Like they just, they seem like more like my people. They're outdoor people. They have four wheelers or campers or like those types of things. And the people mm-hmm. with the veto signs kind of are like, Prius driving, Tesla driving, <laughs> kind of, I get yuppies is the only way I can think of describing yeah. it. But yeah, like, yeah. like those types of people where I'm just like, eh, I don't, I don't know if this is really who I want to be associated with. And it's getting, and, and as the crisis goes on, it's going to get more extreme. Uh, and so, you know, how talks about this in a lot of his interviews and stuff is that people forget that in the crisis of the, the previous uh, seculum, which I don't know if the listeners have been uh, prepped on this, is that the, the seculum is like the whole cycle, which is roughly a human lifespan. Yep. And um, 
in the last seculum, we had a very similar thing and it was sort of uh, capstoned by massive Democrat wins where they basically dominated politics nationally, at least for 50 years. Yeah. And uh, and that was kind of the entrance into the period of unity, which, you know, the the uh, the greatest generation. So the heroes, which would be the millennials in our case, but in the previous case, it would be the the greatest generations. They came out of this as a as kind of a a roughly unified population. Mm -hmm. And so you had basically homogenous rule of the United States by the liberal world order for 50 years, which was mostly Democrats, but, you know, with uh, uh, Republicans as well. And, and it's really kind of interesting to think about it, too. And, and we know this a little bit more just because from the libertarian perspective, if, if how different politics was in the United States, I mean, like the, the, the concept of anarchists that people have are the bomb throwing anarchists that were real people. Yeah, like really existed at the turn of the century. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was not uncommon for people to join the Communist Party. Uh, like there was it was a it was an interesting time that was very different. And our time is, uh, I would say is a lot more homogenous when when we went through ours and is because somebody came out on top and and solidified that and all of the policies that the greatest generation put through, and then the boomers picked up, and the silence didn't care one way or the other about mm -hmm. uh, solidified this sort of homogenous rulership, which I think is part of what's causing the crisis is that that the sort of the Keynesian model of the world won out. That was solidified by this just overwhelming control of American politics and uh, and both sides end up agreeing. even even in 90, 93 or 94, whenever the Republicans finally won the House again, they they didn't really change anything. I mean, it was still the same sort of economic policy, the same thing. And that and that does work for a while. But I think that's where we're kind of in our crisis now is that this is the culmination of very bad monetary policy since the 1930s yeah and uh and i think well we'll probably get into this later because it's in your notes is that <laughs> i really think that's kind of the end of our crisis i don't i it's possible that we have a huge war again but uh i see this as a as being settled economically i think we're in a different age not an age of total war um but sort of an age of economics but uh so that, okay. that's anyways, that's that's sort of my thought about like where it starts. I think 2008, because I think it became very clear to people that um, something was different, like the world had changed, uh, especially if, I, maybe Gen X was more defining. 9-11 uh, was more defining for Gen X than, than it yeah. was for, for us. I was still a kid. So although things were different, it wasn't that much different. However, 2008, I was old enough. I was in the workforce. Things were like my life was changed from that. It mm -hmm. was a, it was, you, I had to have other considerations. And I think that that was true for, especially people around my age. It, uh, the other thing that was, it, that I think 2008 did is it extended our childhood for people who are just slightly younger than me, didn't move out of their parents' house for five or six years. Um, actually some of them haven't even moved out of their, their parents' house yet. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that's kind of characteristic of our generation too, is that, uh, like because of just crisis after crisis after crisis, it's been so hard for a lot of our generation to get up on their on their two, own two feet. Yeah, that they live in 
sort of different arrangements. They have extended family situations. And, and we actually see that now in sort of housing trends right now is that millennials finally are kind of coming into their own, but their choices are to buy larger houses where their family can live with them. Okay. So, uh, and so it's, it's sort of reversing now as their parents now live with, move in with them, which helps them financially. But, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to buy like a two bedroom house nowadays. Yeah. It's you, you can only get a four bedroom or a five bedroom house. Um, it's, you can get older two and three bedroom houses, but, um, it's kind of, that's sort of, I think what's characteristic is that I think a lot of people in our generation, they, they don't really have a problem running up credit, but they don't feel financially secure at all. And I don't no. think they ever, I don't think they will until Bitcoin, but, uh, <laughs> but, I think that's kind of why 2008 to me is such a, it was such a big thing is because the crisis to me has just been financial. It's been, it's just been this extreme financial stress for, uh, you know, 14 years, almost 15 years almost. So yeah, I, I can't okay. think of, I can't think of a single year. I mean, I've done better obviously like I, i've moved up in my career I've, I've made more money but i can't think of a single year where i felt like ah yes everything's on the right track yeah okay that makes a lot of sense so 2001 was clearly a catastrophic and catalyzing event but it wasn't after that things domestically didn't necessarily radically change not for, it kind of not yeah it did but not for like not for kids and and because Gotcha. The, the, the turnings, the turnings are much more. Um, the way that they describe it is that it's it's more of a reflection of where each generation is during the event. So yeah. Um, so like Gen X, some some of Gen X was around when Kennedy was assassinated, but it didn't matter to them because they were like one. Yeah. So like so things like that where it's like yeah these are these were defining moments, but they're. But 2001, I don't think was really that defining for millennials. I think it was much more defining for Gen X. Okay. okay. Uh, so it was, it was closing that era of them. You know, if you think about like Gen X, like my parents are Gen X. My dad was like 33 or 34 in 2001 because uh, I have very young parents. Uh, so like he was, he was pretty young when that happened. Like he was my age now then. And so, yeah if you think about it, he's a guy with five kids, young man, still in the middle of his career. And then this happens plus he's in the military. So like, these are things that are much more impactful for him. And, and also when you think about it, emotionally too, it's like, even if he wasn't in the military, he's got kids. And a lot of people, a lot of the boomers had kids that were roughly around my age. Some of Gen X had kids are roughly around my age at the same time. So to them, it was much more impactful in a different way. Whereas I think when 2008 happened, that was much more impactful to the millennials. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Being a, a younger millennial, I was just starting high school in 2008. Um, and my parents oh, okay. were still together at that point, both uh, working for the, my dad had a, a, a car dealership mm -hmm. that he ran with my mom. Um, and like, I feel like I can remember it being maybe a bit slower year, but th there was nothing really of note that year on a business front for them because my parents throughout my childhood, basically, you know, we never really knew 
the difference of what was coming in one year to the next. You know, I know now that my dad's talked to me about it as a man, that there were years that after paying for everything on the farm and the car lot, he, he literally had $0 to show for the year, sure, but we, yeah. we never knew any different because he, he carried a lot of debt. So he had cash flow at all times to be able to do fun things for us and make it to where we didn't really notice the difference. Right. Um, so it, it's been it's it's weird to look back on it because I didn't have well, I didn't have many friends throughout high school anyway, um, so it didn't it didn't directly or even secondarily affect me or yeah. even many people that I knew. Um, so it's it I I knew like looking back as an adult seeing um, a lot that that came of two thousand eight um, around the world seeing that it was something big, but it's, it's almost like I'm reading about it in history books. Cause it, it wasn't sure. something that affected me directly. Yeah. And that, that's, that sort of, that sort of impression of it is sort of how I feel about nine 11. Okay. Like I do remember it. I do remember watching it. I remember it being shocking, but uh, as far as I, I wasn't, I, I would say not, I wasn't particularly politically conscious at the time. So the, the sort of police state thing didn't really affect me in any way things changed. Like I, you know, we had, we had just moved out to Virginia from California then. And, um, uh, traveling was much more difficult. Sure. It was, it was a bigger pain, but I'd only flown once or twice prior to that. So it wasn't really, it wasn't a huge, like one thing that I always point out is when we flew out to Virginia, I brought my knives with me in my carry on. Yeah. Wow. And nobody cared. Right. Going back. I had safety scissors in my carry on from, cause I was going to do some homework uh, and just my binder had safety scissors in it and that was seized. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like there's like a difference where it's like I had a whole knife collection in my carry on in 2000. Yeah. And then in 2002, when we were going back for, to visit my grandma, it was, uh, it was just, it was very different. It was a, it was just a different time, but wow. um and that was before the shoe bomber and all that sort of stuff. But we did have that sort of age. And it's kind of, I'd be interested to kind of from a younger person's perspective, because a lot of the interviews that I see on that, that uh, Neil Howe gives are with older people. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to have a different perspective. I'd, I'd be curious to see if there's somebody our age that would interview him because the perspective is a lot different. I think, uh, you know, he's a boomer. Um, I've seen a, a couple of interviews he's done with Gen Xers. Uh, and I've seen several reviews of his books by Gen Xers, but I haven't really seen that much from a millennial's perspective. Okay. Uh, and I, and I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, we are still, you know, we're at, we're in different seasons. Uh, so j just for the listeners or whatever, it, the, the idea is that these are seasons, this is the winter mm -hmm. and, but they, they're, they're not, they're defined kind of by what, the way that you perceive the season is defined by what generation you are during the season. So everybody's going to see things slightly differently. Um, I mean, like my grandma's is greatest generation, for example, she's going to see what's going on right now completely differently. You know, she lived through part of the last crisis. Right. Um, so she's going to see what's going on now much different, more differently than like my, my mom and dad who are gen X uh, or my uncles who are boomers. They're they're all going to like boomers never saw the war, uh, 
Gen X never saw the war, but but boomers had the after the war. So one of the things, and they they I think they talk about this actually a little bit in in the book. It's it's been a while since I've read it. So, but um, one of the things that that boomers had was that the entire American economy and and civic network was focused on them. Yeah, it was. We're going to build playgrounds. We're going to build schools. Everything's going to be community oriented. All this sort of stuff, and. So they, so they, it was, it was all about them. And so when they grew up, they believed that the world revolved around them. And so everything was them, but it wasn't for children because it was still about them. And so Gen X, their children, or the next generation after that, really Gen X was more of the silent generation's kids, but they, uh, and, and so silent generation is also sort of interestingly defined by this. They do remember the war, but they were not old enough to win the war. They were, so their, their entire, so that was the that generation was not a large generation, but also it was um, the safest generation. So they were the ones who wanted to lock in their salary when they were young. They wanted to get their house, two or three bedroom, have their kids, be quiet, don't rock the boat, don't do any of that sort of stuff. And that's uh, the Biden generation is where they just they didn't really make a huge impact. Um, some of them did, but but for the most part, they were administrative support. The boomers were much more of uh, so actually. Let's let's uh, let's go over this because I, I want the archetypes are kind of interesting uh, for the listeners. Let me oh, yeah. pull it up. So there's there's the prophet, there's the nomad, the hero, and the artist. So uh, people will be confused, I think, by uh, if we just keep talking about them in in different ways. Is so mm. the prophets are in our in in this current so seculum is the the all four turnings. So in our seculum. Which, we, which, according to the Strauss-Howe generational theory, started roughly around the end of World War I. So we were in the spring. When that ended, the debt was liquidated, and we entered a golden age. Um, and not, not that golden ages ha don't have their problems. That's another thing, too, that, like, that people kind yeah. of go like, oh, it's you know, a golden age. What do you mean? It was terrible for blacks or whatever. It's like, yeah, it, well, it, it wasn't great for them by our standards, but by the standards prior to that, they were actually doing extremely well. So it was a golden age really for everybody. So, yeah. So the heroes end the crisis and enter the golden age. And then the, uh, then there's the artists and that would be our silent generation, which are mostly, um, sort of support. They're not, they're not really movers and shakers. They're more of administrative support. So they're, they are going to be artistic. They're going to do those types of things, but they're not loud and, and disruptive and all that sort of stuff. They're more okay with the status quo and they're okay being secondary. So the, the silent generation was, so we, we, so, and actually Strauss, how talk about this in the book a little bit is that they, they say that we probably won't have a second gen uh, or a silent generation president. And, and they got that wrong because Biden is president and he's, but right. he's probably only going to serve one term. Um, I, I would, I mean, he's 80. I, I, and he's also what whatever you think of him one way or the other he's clearly not all the way there yeah uh so he's old he's he's in cognitive decline uh and he's the only silent generation president we've had so in in your and my lifetime we've seen boomer and uh, greatest generation presidents and we've only seen candidates that were boomers or greatest generation candidates which i think is interesting too is that even in the second term, the uh, or yeah, second term for Clinton, he, his opponent was Bob Dole, who was a World War II vet. And like, so it's kind of weird to think about this: is that th that you had a guy who 
Bill Clinton, who was is clearly the most boomery of boomers, against the greatest generation. And one of the things they talk about in the book too is that the greatest generation just would not give up power. Like they just they held on to it yeah. for dear life forever. Yeah. And um, and that's kind of I think what we see is going on now with the silent generation administratives is that you have, you know, Nancy Pelosi. We we have more octogenarians in 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 government right now than ever before. So you have yeah. Nancy Pelosi's 80, 83 or 84. You have Joe Biden who's 80. Even Trump, who is considered sort of youthful on the right, he's he's old. He's 78 or something like that. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe 77, but he's old. Um, so like so there's this generation and and th and they don't talk about it in the book. They're actually uh, how's writing a new one, a new version of it, okay. uh, where where he pulls in some of the other stuff. So one of the things that they didn't really take into account in the 90s when they were writing it is how much longer people are useful for now. So mm -hmm. the so everything is kind of extended now a little bit uh, because Interesting. yeah because. Because your, your generation is shaped by what you went through, but just because – so like you don't just die off when the fourth turning happens is is that the turnings are are shaped by where everybody is in their in their place, which uh, – let me get back – let me get back into the archetypes because <laughs> it, it depends on where everybody is. So you have the artists, which would be the silent. You have the prophets, which would be the boomers, and then you have the nomad, which would be Gen X. And so – uh, so right now where we are is that we have uh, different people in different parts of the turning. So um, in in the current era we, where we are, uh, we have – we are where the um, – we're in I think what's called the rising adulthood – or no, I guess we would be in midlife at this point. So there's there's different roles of, of where you are in different – parts of the era right so yeah so millennials would be in would be no i guess we i guess gen x yeah it'd be, be young adulthood yeah we'd yeah gen, be gen x adults. would be midlife yeah. yeah yeah we'd be rising adults so uh so the youth would be z then rising adult would be us and then midlife would be like my parents who are in their mid-50s um and then elderhood would be like uh well that would be the boomers so there are still silent left there are still uh, greatest generation, but there's not many. There's only a few hundred thousand greatest generation left. And the silent generation didn't make a huge impact. Uh, they are around, but they kind of passed the buck. Um, Joe Biden, I think one of the reasons why I think he was so popular, well, popular is not really the right way. The reason I think that, that, that people accepted him was because especially millennials, have a kinship with the greatest generation and he's old as crap. And so from our perspective, Oh, he must be world war two era. And so, mm -hmm. and, and this is one of the things that, that how talks about in a lot of his interviews is that you, you tend to have an affinity and a relationship with the generation that is, that was the same phase as you. So a lot of millennials think about, and you, and you can see this in like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the online stuff, like the punch a Nazi thing. Like, oh, my grandpa, he went off and he defeated the yep. Nazis and all this sort of stuff. And so we're going to do that too. And it's like, well, yeah, that's not exactly the same. But also you sort of do have this sort of echoing where they're like, well, that was the same as us. Right. It's the same archetype. Right. It is. And and there are there are some differences. There's there's a couple of uh, – there's like – there's multidimensional facets to this. And like one of the things that uh, 
well, I'll bring it up since it was in your notes was one of the, one of the fastest is, is that communication has changed. Um, which, uh, I, I guess you could say that that it has an accelerating effect, but because the generations last so much longer and and have such an impact on stuff, like when when Strauss and Howard are writing this book, I don't think they thought that that World War II congressmen would continue to hold on pow to power until like the mid two thousands. Like they were they were all really old, but they but they still stayed in. Uh, they stayed in power in Congress for just so long. Yeah. And and we have only had one president that was born after 1960, and that was Obama, but he's technically a boomer. So it's it's kind of a it's just been a weird thing. Like Gen X hasn't really taken their place, although they probably will have a similar role as as according to them, as uh as um uh, as silent generation, silent, so, yeah, 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 they'll be more administrative, but they're also much more self reliant. They get their own shit done. Um, they you think they would fit into a administrative role. Uh, I think as they get older, they do. Okay, uh, so like they'll is there? They're not really interested in rocking the boat. They also rejected the boomers stuff, like all that new age bullshit that the boomers brought in. Yeah. Um, that was kind of a rejection of it. Like my parents actually is uh, to me is interesting. Although my grandparents were uh, greatest generation. Uh, my dad's dad was a boomer and um, it's interesting to me. He was, he was a, a more conservative boomer. He volunteered to go to Vietnam and all that sort of stuff. But um, the sort of the opinion that they sort of had of this sort of new wave of of culture or whatever they rejected that in favor of fundamental christianity mm -hmm. so so you saw a lot of gen xers kind of go back to these evangelical churches and become much more tradition well traditionally christian i mean i wouldn't say it's necessarily traditional but what uh what they saw that their parents free love all that all that kind of stuff they're like no that's stupid and you guys left us alone all the time yeah so we're gonna we're gonna try to sort of change this and and kind of and things are going to be different. So it, it's sort of a, I think it's, 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 I don't know. I'm not really sure how to think about it. Like things are just, they're different. It, it's, it's just so different. I, I guess like a good way to say is like, is that like the boomers when they were, when they were in high school, everybody was the same. And then when they left high school and started to leave high school, then they hit, they became hippies and rejected all of that. And then the uh, Gen Xers were all the first ones to start getting nose rings and like tattoos early and smoke cigarettes and stuff like that to rebel against their parents. They, they had uh -huh. a different rebellion phase. So it's like, so everybody is in a different, a different phase. And then, and they also like the Gen Xers rejected what the boomers became, which was they finally gave up all the hippie stuff and became, uh, they took the individualism from the hippie movement and became the greed is good. Gordon Gecko on wall street. We're going to, we're going to be yuppies. We're going to get ours and we're going to kind of, it, we're going to be focused on ourselves. We're going to, we're going to nuclearize the family even more. We're not going to do these multi-generational things and stuff like that. And they sort of left gen X, out in the cold, which was also a small generation. So, um, it's, uh, they just weren't included and they weren't. And so I think that's kind of what forms a lot of what 
a, what GenX sort of thinks about, where it's they're sort of the the slacker generation, the the dropout. But they, as adults, they have been extremely self reliant and entrepreneurial. Um, they've yeah, taken a lot of sure. what the boomers built and made it better. Okay. Uh, so you get like the the boomers did like Microsoft and Apple. And then Gen X kind of came in and went, well, we're going to do Google and we're going to do Twitter and we're going to do these newer, bigger behemoths. So, mm -hmm. uh, so they kind of built on that. And I think that's kind of, um, yeah, I don't know where else to go with that. <laughs> I, no, I think it's, it's, yeah. It seems that's pretty consistent that, uh, these markers that the generations kind of become known by in their, in their youth still that older generations still try to apply them to them as they grow yeah. and whether that serves as the reason for rebelling against that, or it just becomes the maturing, you need to mature out of that and to do something 135, 180 degrees different. Yeah. It, it's funny just the way that it kind of speaks itself into existence that the generation does end up becoming something akin to the antithesis of what they grew up as. Yeah. Well, and I think it's I think it's kind of interesting because like I've been thinking about this since we, I was preparing for the show, just kind of thinking about things a little bit more. Is that I, I'm I'm a millennial. We're we're as like libertarian anarchists, things are a little bit different, I guess, from our perspective. But like I've been thinking about it a little bit too. Is that one of the things that characterizes millennials a lot is that they're community oriented. And that is something that that like I actually value very highly is like I want a community I want it to be a very specific community but uh, but I am very very and you know the Childerberg is sort of a reflection of this I used to run libertarian stuff uh, when I lived in Virginia and I've tried to get libertarian groups and stuff going out here is because I do want that community and kinship with other people uh, I'm also very much more family focused than although my parents were too but. Um, a lot of a lot of like boomers, for example, just really didn't talk to their parents. Didn't really have a huge, a very strong relationship with their siblings. They were they be they atomized. And millennials and the greatest generation had this sort of two where there was a much more extended sort of focus on their family and and their friends and their fraternities and community civic organiza organizations and that sort of stuff. And I do see a little bit of that reflection in myself. I, I have. Clearly, I mean, you and I both, we sort of have our own quirky political ideas that don't really fit into mainstream, but I, I do see that, oh, yes, I do actually have a lot of these tendencies that they talk about, which is like a lot of very community focused, um, a very extended adolescence uh, to to some degree. It's like, uh, although I'm married, you're married, but I don't have kids. Um, yeah, we don't either. My, yeah. dad had, my dad had five kids when he was my age. Wow. My dad, my dad had a teenager when he was my age. So, <laughs> so wow. like things were very different for them. And so, and, and I kind of think about like my choices all through my twenties and a lot of my choices were, uh, juvenile is not the right word, but they were kind of self-centered sort of like, like fun things to do okay. uh, rather than like trying to build a future and a life and all that sort of stuff. And I think a lot of millennials chose to do that as well. Um, you know, a lot of my friends who are my age are just now starting to have kids. And and there's there's other problems with that when you start when you decide to have kids older is, you know, luckily, I married a, a woman who's much younger than me. But uh, <laughs> but like mitigates. Get, yeah, it does. It, it sort of mitigates things a little bit. But <laughs> but when you're when you are 
if you marry somebody your own age and you wait a really long time to have kids, it becomes difficult. Right. And so oh. typically one of the things they talk about in the book is that large generations give birth to large generations generally. That's that doesn't seem to be the case with millennials. Is millennials is the the second largest American generation um, after the boomers, and um, I, we're not having kids. Yeah, so, at least yet. Yeah, I, think, yet. I think it's got to be a lot of that. Uh, you know, like you've identified impacts from two thousand eight extended mm -hmm. adolescence, um, just kind of failure to launch and inability to. Uh, yeah, I guess just get on their feet generally. Yeah. Um, when, and if you think about it, the, the greatest generation had the same problem. Uh, they they were born in and came of age during the Depression. Mm -hmm. And and then they, although they were dealt a raw deal, and, and I think that millennials to a large degree, like I feel very privileged a lot of, uh, to a lot of like my childhood, but also if I think about it a little bit like from a, uh, civic and one of the reasons i think i'm such a staunch libertarian is that i feel extremely wronged by the government yeah like they they they've made policy decisions that were that were selfish and focused on generations older than my generation this is where we get kind of the okay boomer sort of thing is that they ruined yep. a lot of this like yeah. they've been in, they've been involved in it and they've been in charge for a long time and they ruined a lot of our inheritance i guess and and I, I can see why people are sort of upset about that. I, I, it doesn't, you know, I'm not preoccupied by it, but I can kind of, as I think about sort of the Strauss Howe generational theory, I can see, oh, well, this is sort of, I can empathize with people in my generation who feel this way. You know, I, I was having a discussion with my uncle who's, who's a boomer uh, last time I was in California. And um, he, he had this, he said, uh, he was like, well, when he went to Sac State, he said, when I went to Sac State, it was like 350 bucks for a semester and you could take as many classes as you wanted. Wow. And he said, I, I just think that that uh, so his, and now his son is going to Sac State also. And his son is, uh, I think, is just barely a millennial. Um, he's one of the youngest. Uh, and he uh, it's something like thirty thousand dollars a year. It's something insane like that I, I don't remember yeah. i don't remember exactly what he was saying but it's, it's a crazy amount it's a state school yeah. so um and he's like i just think that for a country as wealthy as ours we should be able to give him the same thing i had and and i go yeah i, I agree that like you should be able to but have you ever stopped and thought about why school is as expensive as it is now versus when you were young and he goes, no, I just think we should be able to do it. And I go, okay, well, <laughs> you're, you're not going to solve the problem if you don't think about what caused the problem. Right. You can't just throw money at it. And and I think that sort of is characteristic of a lot of millennials sort of have that mentality where they go, well, my dad or my grandpa or whatever were able to go through school for nothing. Yeah. And and then they were guaranteed a great job afterward. Like if you finish right. school, you, you're, you know, you're golden. Whereas now it's like, yeah, you finish school, but um you, you come up against all this other all these other obstacles like the the work is is there but it's not really great work boomers are staying in the labor force much longer than the their counterparts before them um so there's just there's not as many jobs and then because of the great financial crisis and all of the crises since then more and more boomers are not retiring and so 
Whereas the boomers kind of came into their own when the greatest generation was starting to retire and they basically over time replaced them. The, and the silent generation, the, uh, the Gen Xers and the millennials have kind of come into their own and the, the boomers and greatest generation or the boomers and the uh, silent generation haven't left. They're still working a lot of those jobs. Like the lady who, who checked me out at Kroger today had to have been 70. Yeah. And yeah. You like, see, I see that a lot. Yeah. Which is it's like, and I get it because the, because of these financial conditions, they do have, they have to work. Right. But, it, but traditionally those jobs would have been made available right? and not even traditionally just in the previous, in what the boomers would have expected because when the boomers were coming through, that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. They, it, it sort of, so I can see why millennials are very resentful about it. Um, I think they, I mean, obviously I think that they should be resentful toward the government because, but I can see why they're like the boomers caused this and, and they need to pay for it and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. You know, we, we see that throughout the book. Um, I think it was the, the greatest generation. Um, the, the previous generations brought in all sorts of programs and benefits to them as kids. And yes. then as they matured, they kept putting those additional benefits onto themselves. So they became right. like the most spent on youngest generation and then ensured that they continued to be that throughout life. So like yeah. the amount of welfare going to children versus elderly when they were children was the highest it had ever been. And by right. the time they made it to elderhood, the ratio had completely flipped because then they bestowed those benefits on yeah. themselves. Yeah. And, and the, and then the boomers reinforce that. So, the, so one of the things they talk about in the book is that the greatest generation, they won, they got the peace dividend and mm-hmm. they, and they decided we're going to spend money collectively on the things that we find important. And so when they came home from the war and they started having families, what they thought was important was them and their families. Right. And then when they got into a little bit of uh, like the middle aged is what they thought was important was them and their kids going to college. So more money was spent on that. And then yeah. when they got into elderhood, they thought what was important was their own health care <laughs> and social security. And so they got more money spent on that. And then the boomers, when they were coming up to this and they saw, oh, we're benefiting from all of this stuff. So clearly we're the center of attention. And they did the same <laughs> thing. They said, we're going to expand these things. We deserve it. And, and you hear this from boomers all the time. And, and, and re- honestly, like I don't, I'm not, I don't begrudge them because I can, I can understand why you feel like you deserve it because you did pay for your entire career with yeah. the promise that this was going to be at the end. The, I think the difference that, that millennials and Gen X have is that we, we came into our own and we looked at it and we went, this is not going to be there for me. Yeah. There's no chance this lasts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just like, yeah. I mean, and, and this, these last, these last two years, especially like they went full MMT, uh, MMT, modern, modern monetary theory. Yeah. MMT. Yep. They went full MMT. They do not care. I mean, and Trump before, even before COVID Trump was doing it. Um, so like it's, they went through and they just, spent so much money on this stuff and it's been the greatest wealth transfer from the young to the old and from the poor to the rich because when you're younger you've got less money typically poor yeah Yeah. so it's been this huge wealth transfer to people who could afford to stay home for two years and and not do anything and so i can i so with all that in mind like i i do understand all perspectives of it um 
I understand a boomer going, I paid into this my entire life. Now it's my turn to relax and go play golf and do all that sort of stuff. I also understand sort of my generation's perspective, which is why should I have to pay for this when you guys ruined the entire system? Yeah. And, and, but we're going to, we're going to have to pay for it. And uh, it's going to be one way or the other. Now I do think, I think it's going to be great to live through the spring. So the winter is the, is the crisis. And then the spring is the golden era. And, uh, sort of what we touched on a little bit earlier is I do think that the golden era is a return to a sound monetary system in Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and I think that's going to be, it's going to be so great for, uh, <laughs> for us and really the world, I think it's going to be good for the entire world, but, but I can see this also, I can see it setting up another a generation of entitled kids, our kids who will be like, Oh, we lived through this, this new gilded age and you know, we're extremely wealthy. Things are progressing. Everything's getting better. And then they maybe will revert back to sort of the, the sort of government welfare projects and stuff like that, uh, where they go, well, we're this rich. So we should be able to, it's sort of the, the ought versus the is kind of mm -hmm. argument where, well, nobody should be poor. And it's like, okay, uh, well, I agree. Nobody should be poor, but some people are poor and there's reasons why. And uh, it's just something you you have to solve. But the, the solution is not to, you know, steal from Peter to pay Paul kind of, you know, it, 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 I mean, this is sort of a whole separate thing. It doesn't really play into the generations, but I can <laughs> sort of see I can sort of see it already starting to happen as you see this, too, is that the silent generation was a very small generation. They're right after the greatest generation. Uh, generation Z is a very small generation and they are different than millennials in that uh, they don't want to work in groups. They want to work individually. So they're great. They're great programmers. Uh, they don't want to. Uh, they're okay just getting a job that has, uh, well, 10 years is the only way I can think of describing it, but some sort of job with security. Even if it doesn't pay very much, they'd rather just not go look for another job. Uh, whereas like millennials, one of the things that characterizes us, we switch jobs a lot. I'm, I'm a little bit different in that case. I, I had a job for 12, uh, for 10 years, and then I'm in my current job for five. And then prior to that, I had a job for four. So uh -huh. I do have a, a little bit longer uh, tenure at my, at my positions. Um, I think I have a little bit more of a, of a older mentality when it comes to work, but uh, Gen Z is much more like that where they're just like, okay, I just want, just put me in the basement. I just want to code. And, and I, a lot of my, uh, subordinates at my work are gen z and they're they're you know 18 19 years old and they're just like look i don't i don't want to i don't want to talk to clients which is a problem because <laughs> i need <laughs> i need them to i don't want to yeah. talk to clients i just want to program and i'm like yeah you got to talk to clients to get the requirements for your programming so <laughs> uh but there i just want to sit here i don't want to talk to anybody i just want to i just want to code and, and i get it like yeah i, I empathize I, with that a lot more yeah for and sure. I think I think that the younger because it's not it's not clear cut where each generation right. is. I think that that the older millennials are a lot more like communal. They they'll talk to people. They're much more they're they're willing to work in groups. I I'm, I've never really liked that. I think that's one of the reasons why I became a developer. Is um, I have good customer service skills. I can do it. I'd prefer not to. Yep. Same uh, so. And I, but whereas like a lot of like my, the guys that are under me that I'm training, like they do not want to talk to anybody. And it's, it's like pulling teeth to get them to. 
Yeah. And it's it's like, dudes, like you've got to do this. Like, or, but maybe they don't, maybe they can just do this. And, and the new, this sort of new paradigm is going to be, you'll have people like me who have to talk to clients and will suck it up and get paid more. And then you'll have coders who will just code based on whatever I tell them. Yeah. And then, and that's it. So hmm. I, I think, it, I think it's interesting the the world we're coming into, um, and I, and I think too, it's a lot of, uh, this sort of plays into kind of one of the other things that you were talking about in your notes was like how technology impacts this is that technology really does, uh, give Gen Z an opportunity not to interact with anybody if they yeah, don't want to. For sure. Uh, at I, least, at least not, at least I'm trying to think of how to say this. They don't have to interact with anybody in a non-virtual manner. Mm-hmm. Couldn't figure out a way to say it without right. double negative. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right, exactly. So, like, they can, uh, you know, picking up the phone and calling somebody is one thing, but they can also, again, telling you how many times I get into a call with some of my guys, and none of them will say anything. But they're there; <laughs> I can see them. Yeah. And so, well, I'll be there and be like, "So, how's things going?" And they're like, silence. I'm like, "Did anybody? Did anybody have a good weekend? Did you do this? Did you know?" And then, like, one person will. Yeah, we went and saw a movie. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's weird. It, it's it's sort of a weird thing. And it, but since I read the the book, I kind of am going like, this is interesting because now I have this sort of perspective of what this these other generations are like, like how averse they are to risk is not the right word, but they're averse to like these social these sort of social interactions, which is, yeah. is interesting. And Gen, um, and Gen Z would be the artist, right? Uh, uh, yeah, they yeah. would be the next artist generation. It's funny that they, they chose that name. Cause I, I mean, this may just be me, but I typically think of an artist as somebody that's like pointing out the absurd kind of intentionally rocking the boat, but they, the artist archetype embodies the opposite of that. It's somebody that's kind of going with the flow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. I mean, like, if you think about it, like they, they went through this and I, I got a chart here. I'll talk about it. It's like the two, the different, so the artists, I think we think of artists as like, uh, you know, like sound, like, uh, Pollock and like these sort of, you know, expressionists and like these kind of like weird, like these weird things where, mm-hmm. like, or, or uh, like expression, like really, uh, over the top musicians even. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything but, like that. But if you think about it, like the way that they characterize it in the book is that it would be like the humanists, uh, the parliamentarians, um, the people who went through the Enlightenment. Uh, I'm reading this off a list. Uh, <laughs> then uh, the progressive era, progressives. So mm-hmm. um, and then the silent. So there it's it's not I, it is interesting that they chose artists because I'm not sure what I would call it. Um, I don't know either. But the prophets, the way that they characterize the prophets are people who um, are questioning the paradigm of society. Yeah. So so that might actually I, I might actually call that more of like the artist, but because you like the philosopher. Go, yeah, they are. They're sort of like the philosopher. So like that was the sexual revolution in the United States in the 60s mm-hmm. and the uh, the civil rights movement, all, all of those types of things. So it's the boomers. But also, if you look at at their at the previous prophet generation they were the missionaries of the yeah. world so they were the ones who did th- went through the revival of the you know i'm a quaker so like one of the one of the things that is really impactful for quaker history is 
during the missionary period in the United States, uh, there was a split in the Quaker religion between evangelicals and uh, conservative and and also liberals. So the, the, the liberals and conservatives became one branch and then the evangelicals became another. But that was sort of the that was sort of an overturning of the status quo as they went from one type of Quaker worship to a different type, which I would consider more mainstream at this point. But at the time, it wasn't necessarily evangelicalism was was new and different. And uh, they considered this to be something that was uh, upsetting to the status quo and all that sort of stuff. So, sure. so it, it's really to kind of think about where things are in their place is and really the silent generation, we did get some art out of that. We got the beats, you know, the beatniks, the poets and stuff like that from the yep. 1950s. We got, um, and they end up kind of growing out of a lot of that stuff. And it was sort of set up the, the prophets, but, um, you know, you, there was some, there, there, there is a, you know, there was a lot of, especially the post-war era. Um, have you ever read Bluebeard by, um, uh, I can't remember his name. He also wrote Ice Nine or not Ice Nine, um, Slaughterhouse Five, and uh, and what is his uh, name? Vonnegut. Uh, Vonnegut, yeah. So Vonnegut has wrote about uh, a post-war war artist who probably was. I would imagine he was Silent Generation in Bluebeard, uh, and there was all that whole post-war era art movement was a lot of the the the. Um, expressionists and the like uh, people that we would kind of, I think we would associate them more with the 1960s because they were in the 1960s, but they were not that generation. They were, their art was coming out in that generation and it was disruptive and the boomers sort of adopted that, but they were not boomers. They were silent generationers. So okay. I think that's sort of, I think that's kind of one reason why. Um, and, and I don't always have the timelines, right. You know, my first, my first major was uh, art history. <laughs> before i studied software engineering um and it, i always whenever it, it's sort of interesting to think about your own concept of when people are doing different types of art like what you think of that era as being sure yeah yeah and and the post-war era you know a lot of art a lot of really great art and actually you see this too with the the veterans of world war one too a lot of the art and architecture that came out of world war one is basically like a re-expression of trauma from the war so if you look at a lot of the the post-world war one buildings and uh especially the residential buildings in the united states a lot of them are basically recreations of trenches a lot oh, of wow. long a lot of long hallways and then the windows yeah. are up, up are up high and they're narrow and thin yeah and like it's it's really interesting to kind of to see this is that like they're they're recreating their experience in world war one wow. and uh in the form of beautiful architecture and the same thing happened with the with the post-war era is that you had kids who went through the depression went through world war ii but were not necessarily part of world war ii as far as fighting goes but they were they were they had a trauma from that and then they when they came back or when they when the war ended they end up developing art based off of that and then as we went further on in the future we have what I would say is uh, inflationary art. So you have just the art gets shittier and uh, because the government's just throwing money at anybody who can, you know, glue two pieces of sticks together. Right. And I feel like, and it feel like safe would call it fiat art. 
Yeah, fiat art, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, and that's and that's and and I think that's true. So, it makes uh, a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Um, okay. Let's 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 look at your notes some more because I think sure. I keep derailing us and getting us. No, we're off. good. I'm I'm wanting to <laughs> do like a whole series going through a lot of this book. So as broad as we get is, I'm fine with any of it. Okay. Um. So I'm trying to see here in. Oh, there was something actually. You you mentioned this the Russia Ukraine situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that was interesting that I I saw last week. I was I was looking at a a review of the book and it was done by a European who was who like reanalyzed it from. Uh, so very specifically in in um, the fourth turning, it is the Anglo American turning. Yeah, uh, but not every culture is in the same cycle. Uh, or not in the same space of the cycle. And this guy did a really interesting analysis of it where he put the uh, the Russians in the awakening. They're they're going into the awakening. So we're, we're going through our crisis. They're going into the awakening from their golden age. Okay. Uh, and I thought this was interesting. And it made sense is that um, the Soviet Union collapsed. That would be their climax of their crisis. The yep. Soviet Union collapsed. Then there was six or seven years of just, I mean, it was like Russia. I don't think, Amer- I don't think Westerners realize this so much is like Russia was a shithole after the Soviet Union collapse, like worse than when the Soviet Union was there. Their, their abortion rates were through the roof. There, there were people dying of alcoholism and drug overdose, like insane amounts. They were killing their kids. Um, like nobody was getting married. Nobody was having kids. The kids that they were like, like I was saying, the kids that they were having, they were aborting, or they were, or they were killing them when they were born. Uh, tons wow. of sex trafficking. The kids were given up for adoption everywhere, and then they, and then basically went into the sex trafficking ring and stuff like that. And yeah. at the same time, we had the the basically the American carpetbaggers were there, extracting all of the mineral wealth from Russia. Yeah, and anything they could get their hands on. Basically, yeah, and and making these oligarchs that were usually mostly former Soviet people um, extremely wealthy in the process, and then their hero generation was the ones that kind of carried them through the collapse of the Soviet Union. Which this may be controversial, but it that would be Putin would be their their right. Unifying I expected leader. that's where you were going. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and say what you will about him, he did turn Russia around quite a bit. Is he basically? Now their culture is very different than our culture. I mean, I'm married to a Ukrainian, so I have I do have my own biases. Whereas, like I'm I am very much on the Ukrainian side of the conflict. However, I think that the whole situation is much more nuanced than the way that the Westerns Westerners look at it. Mm-hmm. And so, Putin's generation kind of came in and they gave an ultimatum. Basically, they basically said, "Westerners, get out, or you'll be killed." And the Westerners left. And for the oligarchs that were left, they said, get in line and support the government or we'll kill you and your family to multiple generations. Wow. And so they mostly got in line and the ones that didn't were killed and their families were killed. And Russia entered in the late 90s, early 2000s, a golden era of prosperity. And you can see this characterized by if you go to Moscow or St. Petersburg or one of their major cities. Now, this doesn't mean that it was great for everybody everywhere. But right. it's just you, broad strokes. Right. If you go to their great cities is is if you go to like I don't know how if you've been to New York. So like New York 
is to me a shithole. The the subways have not been revamped in years and years and years. Sure. The, it's it's dirty. The buildings are old. They're not well cared for. Uh, there's a lot of garbage everywhere, like all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and then my understanding, though, about about Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and several of their other large cities is that they've been going through revitalization projects, everything. They've been tearing down the crappy Soviet stuff and putting up new, beautiful, modern architecture. Wow. And um, by Soviet architects or I'm sorry, by Russian architects, not Soviet architects, <laughs> by, by Russian architects. And by and so they they're basically they have been revitalizing their own culture trying to force or trying to kind of make a situation where people have children and they succeeded they they have had more kids they've not enough but i mean they're still going to go through a population crisis but um, they've had more and they've kind of staved that off a little bit and and that's sort of where we kind of come to the point with the war in ukraine is that uh, I think that they realize this, this this situation. So they're going through right now. They're they're entering the the second phase of uh, of their seculum, and that would be the um, the, uh, the summer. Yeah, yeah. So the, the awakening. Summer. So they are going. So and and you can kind of see this, and it makes sense too. Is is that they they're going through like a orthodox revival period in, okay. in a lot of it. They've they've built uh, since Putin took over. They built thirty thousand new uh, Orthodox churches just in Russia. And so like, there is sort of a revival going on. There's, um, I I think people put a lot of, um, emphasis on it, but Dugan is, is, I I think they're putting a little bit more emphasis on him than, than Putin really does. But, but you have Alexander Dugan and these types of people coming out and very pro-Russian philosophers and thinkers, which in Mm -hmm. the West we sort of dismiss as, Oh, whatever they're stupid or, you know, but like, from their perspective, they are they're they're in an awakening. They have their own methodology and thought process that they're developing, and um, their own perspective on their own history. The you know like Dugan and, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the Russian philosophers see uh, the Soviet era as a as a Western perversion that this was kind of foisted on them, and they're not wrong. I mean, like right. they 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 have good evidence for it. You know, the the United States supported the soviet union during its early days we the allies sent uh um uh lenin to russia to basically disrupt things like right. all, all help them win a world war <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff where they're not wrong we have and then you know stalin came into power and he killed 10 million ukrainians and then what the, the united states didn't say boo about it we in fact allied with him and then supported them until about 1950 so yeah. uh so from their perspective the the and also stalin wasn't russian he was georgian so like there's from their perspective these are all non-russian factors and they're basically reclaiming the russianness which is the the from their perspective the continuation of rome so okay uh and this is and so so the way that kind of Ukraine plays into this from their own propaganda, which, which I don't mean that in a negative context. It's, it's basically the story that you tell of yourself is propaganda. Sure. So, okay. uh, so their government basically is telling the story that this is kind of what happened is that we've been perverted by the West. And, and, and again, like 
if if you if you very strictly lay out what they're saying, not necessarily what you think they actually mean, but what they're saying, they're not wrong. Like in the West, we have a mental health crisis. Like people are crazy. We everybody's on drugs here. Uh, we abort our children. Uh, there's, I mean, homosexuality, whether you think it's right or wrong is rampant. They see this as, as a wrong thing. Um, we allow our kids to go on puberty, puberty blockers. We chop off their tits. We chop off their dicks, like things like that. Like to them, they're just going like, holy shit, like whatever's going on there, we don't want. And again, from whatever people's liberal perspective is on this, that is not how they think. And right. if you, and, and this is one of the biggest mistakes I think people make about China and about Russia is that. You know, so many people think that like they go like, oh, if I was alive in in the 19 or 1850s, I'd be against slavery. And the reality is you would not be. You right. would be you would probably be in favor of it or you wouldn't give a shit. Yes. You're and, you're echoing the same things that every large institution right. in America is doing. Mm-hmm. They were not against slavery in the 50s. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's sort of the same thing is that people go like, well, you know, the Russians are bad or or they're they have these wrong ideas or whatever. And it's like it, you can think that, and and you may be correct. I don't. I'm not going to say one or the other, or at it, least it, correct in our context. Yeah, in our not context, necessarily yes. in theirs. Right, and and also, they also need to keep in mind that we're not seeing the situation crystal clear either. It's through the propaganda of our state. So, right. so they have their propaganda. We have our propaganda, and you can believe what you want. But from their perspective, they're reclaiming Christendom the original Christendom from, because from their, czar means Caesar. So from mm. their perspective, the continuation of Rome was to the czar as the patriarch of the church. And that is, that is what they're restoring. And what's important to them is Kiev, because from their perspective, Kiev is Russian. It, it played, it played the an integral part in, um, the formation of the Russian state. So it's part of their historical. Also, Odessa is extremely important to them, which is also part of Ukraine. So all of these things are, from their perspective, are different. And they're going through a, a philosophical renaissance that codifies this and gives some sort of cohesion to these thoughts and also sets the Soviet era in the context of it being, uh, basically them being, it being foisted on them by the West and they're not, and they're not completely wrong on that either. So um, now from our own perspective, things, things are very different. I mean, but I want to, I talk to my dad about this all the time and he said, and like, he'll be like, those are good points and stuff. But yet he is, you must remember that I grew up when the Soviet union, which is to him synonymous with the Russians, right. Were the greatest that threat and the great devil. And he's like, I can't really think of it any other way. Yeah. So, and one of the things I always talk to, I always say is I, I get it. That makes sense. But you are sort of siding with Ukraine and, and not wrongfully so. Um, but also my, my mother-in-law who lives with me now because of the war was a Soviet soldier in the Soviet military, but wow. is Ukrainian. So she right. was the enemy. So these people that, that you're siding <laughs> yeah. with now were the people that you were enemies with. You just, think of them as Russian and you thought of them as Russian then, but now you think of them as Ukrainian, but it's the same people. Right. So, uh, and, and it, I mean, it's very interesting. Like one of the, one of the things that also has kind of interested me about this whole situation too, is when my wife and I first met, I remember going like, well, what's the difference between Ukrainian 
and uh, Russian. And she goes, well, they're basically the same. It's like Canadian and American. And, uh, and I said, okay. And, but then as soon as the war started, my wife isn't like this, but as soon as the war started instantly, it was, uh, her mom and, and, uh, the other woman that was living with us, Olga for a while were like, well, we're not speaking Russian anymore. We're only speaking Ukrainian. And, uh, and the kids that were living with us too, they spoke Russian and they spoke Ukrainian, but it was kind of hard for them. They were young, so it was hard for them to differentiate between the two. They sort of spoke what we call Spanglish, where it's like a mix between Spanish and English. Yeah. So like you they had this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, it was my wife called it fusion. So it's like they kind of use yeah. both. And but their mom would like scold them like, oh, no, 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 don't use that word and stuff. And it's like <laughs> like that, that's just that's what they are raised. And, and up until a certain point this was acceptable to you. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. Right. And, and it's, it's also very interesting too, is like, I, I think this is just because the, the area that we live in, like I read antiwar.com religiously and I've been hearing about Ukraine shelling Donbass for eight years. Yeah. And then, and when this happened, I went, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And there's so many people who are shocked by it. Even, even my wife's mom and Olga were like, no, we would never do that to Donbass. I'm like, I can, I can pull up articles This is going on forever. This is what you guys have been doing. Your government has been doing this. Yeah. Like, no, no, we would never do that. We only love peace. It's like, no, that's, that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, I mean, now granted, like I said, I, I also don't think that I, I'm 100% anti-war. I don't think that this was good at all, but uh, but it, from the perspective of the of the of the fourth turning, it, it, it's interesting to think about where the Russians are in their turnings. So where they would be currently, from our perspective, would be the same as um, the Vietnam era for us. So it was that that rough time, that awakening is that, mm -hmm. and we did have a lot of revivalism going on at the time. That was uh, you got a lot of folk music and a lot of uh, spirit and sky, that kind of music where like yep. there was sort of this like neo revivalism going on, and they're kind of in that as well. But because they are culturally just different than us, it it kind of expresses differently. So right. it takes a different flavor. It does. So like one of the one of the things that we get from Western propaganda a lot is that. They started this draft and everybody's everybody's fleeing Russia and trying to run away to Finland and all that sort of stuff. And that's true to some extent. Nobody's denying that some people are leaving. But if you look at the people that are leaving, it's mostly Western educated, <laughs> sort of left wing, Western sympathizing type people. And they've also had a massive volunteer movement in Russia for the military. The, the problem is they just don't have that many kids. There's just not many young people. There's not many people right. our age. So they, so that's kind of their deficit is that they are losing people and they can't really afford to lose people because they just don't have, they don't have that many, which is one of the other notes that you have here is because one of the other books I've, I've uh, been citing a lot lately is um, the end of the world is just the beginning, mm -hmm. which he has a slightly different perspective on generations, I think, than Strauss Howe, but he kind of goes through this as well, where he says these generations. So one of the things that that differentiates the United States from pretty much the entire rest of the world is that when the war was over and we won, we had children. 
but nobody yeah. else did. And that was, and so well, all yeah. the boomer, all the boomer generations all over the rest of the world are extremely small and small generations give birth to small generations. And most of the rest of the world has been getting worse. So, and it makes sense I, in the rest of the world yeah. because America went to fight in all those European countries. They were like the center of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. They they lost a lot more people and they had that trauma right there local to them. They're not going to come yeah. back with a lot of hope because even the side that won, everything around them is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For America, and- it was just as as a light switch. Like there's a lot of people coming back with insane trauma, but they came sure. back to welcoming arms in a. Yeah country that had been built up for their pleasure and support yeah and then and then night and day very quickly and right very quickly afterward we liquidated the debt and which is kind of what made the 1950s what the 1950s was whereas the rest of the world became indebted to the united states yeah and so they didn't have that boom that we had wow uh you know they had, they had transferred a lot of their money to the United States in World War One, and then they finished that transfer in World War Two, and we basically were able to live off the excess of these other countries for, and we burned through it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like this is the entire the entire Gilded Age worth of wealth accumulated and saved up, and then transferred to the United States, and the United States spends it, you know, within thirty years. Yeah, and, which is why we had to leave the gold standard. Is that all that all that gold had been transferred to us and we overspent and didn't have the gold anymore so yeah i knew i should have wore one of my wtf happened in 1971 shirts today but i wore yeah. one last time so didn't, didn't <laughs> yeah. want to repeat i've just got the hold on i got i got to make it bigger because i can't see what's it what's it say just read it to me it's just the everything divided by 21 million oh, oh okay cool well, and, that, and that's, I think, so that sort of brings us to, so the amount of interviews that I've seen with, with Strauss, so the end of the world, as you know, it, a different book, which actually I think is worth going over at some point. Um, this is uh, Peter Zion is the author of that excellent book. Really, really interesting. Has a very different perspective on the world than I have, um, but he does go into the generation theory a little bit. And he, his generation theory is a little bit different than the Strauss Howe one. Um, mostly because he's not really concerned with cycles. He's more concerned about what's going on right now. And so from his perspective is we are, so the, the greatest generation birthed the new world order, uh, the, the liberal world order. And that was basically, um, the United States became the world's police. And we, and we told everybody, we bribed everybody basically join Western liberalism and you can tap into this network of materials that are available to you and you don't have to pay for the military. You can just, you can sail the seas. We'll police the seas. You won't get pirates or anything like that. And that worked uh, fairly well for the, for the world for a long time. And what's interesting about it too, is the United States never really tapped into it that much. We, we did the policing and we did the banking and, but we didn't really integrate a huge amount of our infrastructure into it. We still produce our own natural resources here. We do have some manufacturing, mostly it's higher level manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like a lot of people say like, oh, you know, China, they do X, Y, Z. And it's like they do, but it's very quickly becoming apparent that um, they 
you cannot produce in China for less than you can produce in the United States or in Mexico. Um, mostly it's Mexico is actually where a lot of our manufacturing is done now. Uh, and there's, it's, it's so the, the sort of hypothesis that, um, that he has in the end of the world is as, uh, or is just the beginning is that since basically the Clinton era, the Americans have sort of lost their taste for policing, which from yours and my perspective may sound kind of counterintuitive, but if you read through the book, he kind of goes through the downsizing of international military operation in the United States. And it used to be kind of the sort of more like flat, there's military everywhere to very specific points where the military is. So Clinton, okay. Clinton during his era shut down tons of, military bases all over the world. I, I actually remember when he shut down the one in Scotland because my there was a SEAL team there. My dad's a SEAL. So uh, huh. my dad was pissed off because he wanted to be stationed in Scotland. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, but he did. He shut down all of these bases all over the place. And and instead, they, they started shifting the United States military into from a battleship fleet with military bases everywhere to a carrier fleet that could be deployed in multiple... Uh, venues uh, simultaneously, but okay. you you can't really patrol the entire world with five or six carriers. You you can patrol the world with hundreds of destroyers. So our military over the last twenty years, according to him, has basically shifted from a military that can basically police the world to a military that doesn't really have the ability to anymore. And, and if you look at statistics, uh, piracy has upticked quite a bit. So uh, it's evident in basically the way that the United States operates is that this is the end of it, basically. And, huh. and he says that if you go through it and look at the policy too, is that Clinton ran on a peace, a peace sort of platform and was voted in. Bush ran on a humble foreign policy and was voted in. Obama ran on a humble foreign policy and was voted in. Trump ran on a humble foreign pol policy and actually very American centrism yep. and was voted in. So clearly from his perspective, the Americans do not want to be international police anymore. They just are not interested right. in it. It's We don't see the benefit. Um, after World War II, we did because there was people who still remembered World War II. But at this point, there's not really anybody left. There's a couple hundred thousand World War II vets left. It's very few people who remember that. And uh, and frankly, the United States doesn't need anybody else. Uh, right. We've got we can build everything we want here, uh, and uh, or with with Mexico and with Canada. And we have so the same relationship that we have with um, with China, which is the, a differentiation in um in payment for people who work um sort of lower end jobs like manufacturing mm -hmm. uh we have that same relationship with mexico and with uh like guatemala and places like that so yeah. there's just we don't need china we don't need asia anymore and so he goes through this in his book and he he sees this as also at, at the end of an era and his is that so the way that we, this would be in the perspective of the Strauss Howe generational theory is to the end of the seculum here is that this previous seculum was the age of global domination by America. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the Soviet Union did exist, but <clears throat> if we actually look at this historically, is the Soviet Union was really not that important. 
uh, it did drive a lot of the stuff that was going on domestically. And there was some international stuff. But when the Soviet Union ended, we realized that they were a paper, a paper bear, actually, in their case, not mm -hmm. a paper tiger. Yeah. <laughs> they were, uh, they, they had like, they did have all these nuclear warheads, but their silos didn't open or they had all the tanks that they said they had, but some of them could only go in reverse. They couldn't go forward. Like there was oh, a wow. lot of stuff like that where like we realized, oh, they're actually not. Now, I'm pretty sure that the United States government knew this and for sure, but they were playing it up so that they could spend more money. But, right. but it became very clear to the public that, oh, the Soviet Union was not actually as big and bad as we thought. And actually, we see sort of a very similar thing going on right now with the war in Ukraine is they've been building up Russia as this huge threat for a long time, but they can't even win a war in Ukraine. And yeah, now, granted, we're dumping billions of dollars into it, but it's it's not a huge country. It's not uh, a very advanced country. Up until this war, it wasn't a patriotic country. Like it's <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very um, it's sort of a, the same sort of thing is that the is that the Russians seem to be very good at making people think that they're stronger than they are. Okay. Uh, and and I think they did the same thing here or or possibly it's not that they're doing that. It, it could be that the United States government sees an advantage of making them look like they're stronger than they are. And that so from be. so so then we are surprised when they can't take a country like Ukraine. I feel like they also have to realize that they've more or less got a gun at the back of their neck and they can only do so much in Ukraine. Yeah. I, I think well, and that, it, that's the other, that's another thing too. And actually um, in the end of the world is just the beginning. He talks about this a little bit is that uh, the Russian leadership knows that they don't have that. If they don't take Ukraine now they're they won't be able to, because there's no, uh, there's no youth in their country and wars mm -hmm. are fought by young men. Right. Uh, so that's one part of it is that they don't. In, in fact, you see this a lot actually is that a lot of their military is not, are not ethnic Russians. They're mostly other, the other people that are in the Russian Federation. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, we actually see this a lot with um, Chechnyans. There's a lot of Chechnyans fighting okay. there. And they have war experience because there was the big conflict in Chechnya. And, and actually, that's another one that Putin kind of came in and put an end to, but at great cost. I mean, it was that was not a easy uh, win for them. And uh, so the Russian Federation is is sort of it's different than I think the way that people conceptualize it. It's it's even looser than the United States. So like each each oblast, there's a lot of oblasts that are actually completely autonomous. So they don't actually have to do anything the Russian Federation says. They have they they pay a little bit of money up, but that's about it. Um, but they're also, you know, there's Russians, and then there's all of the other ethnic groups that are in the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of one of the things that's kind of interesting going on. But then also there's the Russian diaspora, which was caused by Stalin mostly, which is in Ukraine and in Kazakhstan and in, well Belarus is uh, I think Belarus translates to white white Russia, so I think they yeah. are just ethnically Russian. Um, but there's there's Russians. So like for example, in a, we always think of Estonia and Latvia and all this as being our friends, but there are Estonians and Latvian ethnic Russians that are not allowed to have citizenship in those countries, and they're not allowed to leave. So there, so there's a lot of these things. There's a lot of these former Soviet countries who have Russian populations, and they treat them very poorly. They're not citizens. They're not allowed to vote, but they're also not allowed to leave. So. 
um, there, this is an aspect of this whole conflict that people don't realize is that this, this is what Stalin did. Like one of the most sinister lasting things of Stalin was that in order to make sure that people couldn't revolt or, or gain strength in any one place, he forced people to move around. Okay. So you have, you have a whole bunch, hundreds of thousands of Russians in, uh, Ukraine, you have uh, there's a there's a place called Transnistria in uh, Moldova, which is on the other side of Ukraine, which is all ethnic Russians. There's a huge ethnic Russian population in Latvia and Estonia and all of these countries. There's a bunch of uh, Ukrainians in um, Kazakhstan, ethnic Ukrainians that speak Ukrainian and all that sort of stuff. And then like in other places, there's just ethnic Ukrainian. There's a lot of ethnic Ukrainians in Russia. So. Right. Um, so there's a lot of like that's a sort of a weird situation too. But the, what in the end of the world is as uh, or it's just the beginning is he's talking about is basically the United States is pulling back, but he goes through basically where a lot of other countries are in their in their demography, and um, Russia is basically at the end. Uh, they're going to have a huge population decline in the next couple of years, and and even more now because a lot of their youth is, are their young men are dying in this war, right? Um, China, it, he, he gives China to the end of the decade. Wow. Uh, their pop, he says they're so far beyond terminal as far as their population because of the one child policy. Yeah. Uh, they not only do they did they not have enough kids, but they also only had men or, or boy childs or uh, male childs. So they have this extremely lopsided. And then they're also uh, xenophobic is not the right word, but they're they don't they, they don't want to breed out of Chinese. So, right. um, yeah. so especially like the Han Chinese apparently are very yep. stick are big sticklers on this too, is that they don't, they don't even want to the other types of people in China. They don't want to interact with them. Uh, and then also their forced abortion policies on like the Uyghurs and things like that. So you've got all of, so they, they're basically, so one of the quotes that he says is, and actually this happened last weekend, I think that uh, the world would reach 8 billion people. And I think it reached 8 billion uh, by the UN estimate last weekend. Um, and it would never reach 9 billion. And we would see probably 6 billion before we see 9 billion. Wow. And uh, I have my own conspiracy theories that play into this because I think, that, <laughs> I think that a lot of people are going to be killed off by the vaccines um, through, uh, well, killed off or not have children as a result. So I, there was actually some statistics that just came out from Australia about this, that they had like a 26% decrease in childbirth at the, uh, so nine months after the vaccine came out in Australia, there's suddenly a 26% drop in births. Wow. And it's like, so, and they've been mostly steady for a long now there, and they've always been under replacement. They, they, they rely on a lot of immigration. And right. same, same thing with the United States. We're, we're yeah, it seems consistent for white countries for a while. Yes, yeah. And so um, Peter Zion goes through this. And so like he says, like so um, China's beyond terminal. He doesn't think that Germany lasts this year. So he says maybe they'll, re they'll get into 2023, but he thinks they're done. Wow. Uh, and I didn't realize that he goes through it. And like there are like no young Germans. Huh. And uh, their entire economy is based off of immigrant labor, and and the same is true for tons of Europe. Uh, so he says he says Turkey's actually not too bad as far as demographics go. Uh, France is actually not too bad as far as demographics go. Britain is done; uh, they don't have kids. And wow! So he says they're they'll 
what he thinks is they'll they'll basically attach themselves to the Anglosphere, which will be the United States. So the United States, we did have kids. So we do have we have enough people that will be able to go on and be productive. But the world's sort of interests have changed and we're not really globally, we're not a, a lot of countries have not been interested in uh internationalism the entire time. But sure. There was there was some stuff that was offered to them that made it appealing, but now the stuff that we promised as the United States to get them to be part of the global world order is not there anymore, and and this is this is further a problem with places like and we we can see this actually early on in Yemen, they their population boomed when they joined and got the loans from the World Economic Forum. Or from the uh, World, World Bank. Bank, yeah, from the World Bank, uh, and they replaced their sorghum with coffee, yeah, and and they so they had this, but they were like, oh, who cares? We can import all this food from all these other countries because the United States is protecting the sea lanes. Well, that's done, right? And there's a yeah. lot of countries like that, and they're going to have just massive starvation because uh, wow. the because you're not going to be right now. You know, I can go to the grocery store and I can get sausage made in Germany. I can get Chinese like pork from China. I can get all this stuff at the grocery store, but mm -hmm. that's, that's over. Like that is very quickly going to be done. Um, Americans will be able to do it, but it'll be expensive. And so we won't, we'll, we'll go back to more local, local living. And mm -hmm. um, I think they call it, uh, well, Canada's trying to actually, they're doing it more of a, from a state side. They, they call it the, uh, I think a hundred mile diet. Okay. So, yeah. I've heard that here yeah, too trying to promote that where it's like you you should only be eating stuff within 100 miles of where you live mm -hmm. so um kind of priming the population for yeah. the reduced expectation yeah yeah and, and i think that this is this is so it used to be that if you were in yemen you could get grain from and actually we see this with the whole war in ukraine too you used to be able to just get grain from ukraine import it it was cheap and feed your population have bigger families all that sort of stuff and now we're seeing that the UN is estimating that there's going to be maybe 30 million people starved to death this year because they can't get enough grain out of Ukraine and the harvest is not as good as it was because of the war. And right. also Russia has so many sanctions on them. A lot of their stuff is, is being difficult for them to get it out. So, and then on top of this, you have like China, which one of the problems that China has is that uh, they have a sort of cult of personality government where Xi Jinping kind of decides everything, but they did. So they had, um, they had a, a swine flu about two years ago. And so they culled their swine herds, their pigs, mm -hmm. the amount of pigs that they culled, which was one third of their entire pork population is more than the rest of the world's pork production combined. Wow. And they just killed them, got rid of them. And th their government was like, well, that's not going to be a problem because we'll just subsidize more pork farmers to come in but they didn't monitor the funds to see uh where these pork farmers were coming from so it's mostly just people who have no experience raising pigs going oh for <laughs> money let me let me get on sure. get on that and they so they would take it so but they don't know what to do this mm -hmm. is we're seeing is actually a very similar thing happening in south africa right now because their government is uh kicking out white farmers basically this and this happened in zimbabwe 30 years ago 40 years ago um wow you got their new government coming in going, we want reparations for colonialism. We're going to kick you out. 
uh, we saw this again actually when the during the uh, Soviet era. One, one of the reasons why so many Ukrainians starved to death was the Soviets came in with your landowners. That means you're rich, right? To Siberia with you, yeah, the kulaks, yep. And they said you're going to Siberia, and they were like, okay, now peasants, you get this land, and the peasants are going like, we know how to work when they tell us what to do, but we don't know what to. We don't know how to grow food, basically. Right. It's like we need instructions. The same thing is happening right now in South Africa, and it happened in Zimbabwe a couple of years ago. The government came in. And went, we want reparations for colonialism, so we're going to take this land away from you guys. We're going to give it to these people who are oppressed by the colonial authorities, and they get the land, and they're just like, ah, yeah, okay. it was better. When, it was better when I could eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When and this is we're seeing this. Um, we covered this actually on Tasting Anarchy quite a bit is what's going on with their vineyards because they, they keep giving these vineyards away to so that they'll seize it from the people who own the vineyards who are white and uh, and they'll, and those guys will just leave and go back to England or wherever um, or actually, Netherlands. Them, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. And and then they'll revisit these. uh They'll give it to the people who worked it, which are mostly black. So the blacks were usually doing the labor. But they don't have it. They know how to grow grapes. They know how to make wine. They don't have any of the business acumen, so mm, okay. they don't. They don't understand how to how to get the product ready for market. They don't how to. They don't have the connections internationally to sell yeah, for it for distribution all, and everything. Yeah, sure. all of this. Yeah, so that's one thing that they're having right now is where they're like, well, we know how to. But they also have other deficits. That one of the one of the big deficits is that is irrigation. So. Uh, South Africa is not a very wet place, so you do have to irrigate your crops. Um, a lot of the irrigation was an engineering feat, and the workers were not privy to the engineering portion. That was mostly done by the administrators. And so the administrators were like, okay, we need to make sure these pumps work. We need to make sure this water silo works, like mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. And this is not stuff that they have the knowledge to – they can learn how to do it. But it's right, but it's going to take time and failed yeah, crops to get there. Exactly, and so, so they're and in the meantime, they're running a they're running at a loss on their on their farms, and mm -hmm. this is caught. Well, first of all, there's it's a deficit of food. It's also a deficit of uh, products, so they're not making any money. And the the same thing is happening in a lot of countries right now. So you know, Yemen because of the war wow. that's been going on there for ten years or twelve years, I think at this point. Um, they don't grow any coffee, but all of these people were, were transitioned to coffee farmers and, uh, they can't do that. And meanwhile, you know, a hundred miles away they're the, the world cup cup is happening in Qatar that costs billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. You have like these people in Yemen starving to death and who, and through all, but this is sort of, this is what's coming to an end. All of these problems are symptoms of the same thing, which is. Uh, you know, the 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 former world police that people had to worry about are just not there anymore. And actually, we saw this over the weekend. Turkey has invaded northern Iraq and Syria, and then Iran at the same time was kind of like, oh, I guess we'll get on in on this too because we don't like the Kurds either. So they started shelling northern Iraq, and it's wow. like, and so if you think about this, this would have not been something that would have happened twenty years ago. When, right. when we were at like the height of the Iraq war, yeah, Iran would not be shelling Iraq or, or yeah, Iran would not be shelling Iraq. Now it happened. It barely makes the news and nobody gives a shit. And wow. I think that's kind of what 
that's the world that we're entering right now is we've got our own problems. We're not prepared really to do we're 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 tired. I think that's another thing too, is that the American population is tired. Yeah. You know, we've got our guys come back from these wars that mean nothing and they come back, they're drug addict, addicted, and they have, they're committing suicide at these ridiculous rates. They have PTSD, all this, all these problems. And, uh, and so I think the American population is just, we're, we're mostly, we're done with it. And, uh, that's sort of what, uh, this sort of plays into both actually the world is just the end of the world is just the beginning and also the strauss how generational theory is that this is the period of crisis and and kind of also so to sort of bring it full circle back around to bitcoin why i think this is sort of a is this this era is whereas i think that the previous seculum was us going international this is going to be the seculum of us domesticating again uh or at least regionalizing because uh I think from the 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 petrodollar system that we kind of adopted, well, really in the seventies fully, but the, but the whole the whole American dollar system that was sort of adopted after World War II um, doesn't work, and we need we need a, a sound money system. So basically, our golden age in the previous cycle was funded by our peace dividend and the peace dividend was basically us taking money in from the rest of the world. And yeah. so we were able to run these huge deficits uh, and make it kind of look like things were good. Uh, but, and, and we, and we did, we ran those, we, we had the war on poverty. We had the great society, um, great society, war on poverty. We had the uh, Medicare, Medicaid, social security, all of these things. Hmm. And we paid for all of those because we were able to basically print whatever we wanted and the rest of the world just accepted it. And it was because we were basically dominating. Yeah. And I think that's over. And um, I I don't know that it's going to be like a sudden shift that the dollar doesn't exist anymore. I just think that it'll be kind of over time. People will start. I, I'm seeing more and more places take Bitcoin. Um, I think that's kind of where it's going to go. I, Bitcoin's going through a bit of a rough patch right now. But, uh, but if you look at it kind of historically to Bitcoin, like this is still not a rough patch. This is 16 yeah and i remember that's what I a remember, six it's a 60 percent drawdown there's been there's yeah. been multiple 80 percent drawdowns right exactly so and i i think there probably will be more of a drawdown um and, and a lot of this is because it's got to shake loose uh it's got to shake loose like grayscale um, yeah it's got it's got to it's got to break its tie to yeah. the perceptions of everybody that it is part of crypto it is part of this just yeah. financializing everything playing games with your money because that's the only way you can beat inflation exactly well and so i think that's kind of that's so i'll share i'll share some personal stuff hopefully my dad doesn't listen <laughs> but, <laughs> uh so my dad had his his bitcoin on ftx and oh, i was i was or not i'm sorry not ftx uh BlockFi, which is also looks like also been yeah. yeah um I was out there last month and I was like, dad, you got to get your stuff off and put it onto your wallet. He's like, okay, well show me how to set up a wallet. So I showed him how to set up a wallet, showed him how to transfer money out. He put a little bit on it and he, and, and he was like, oh, well you don't earn interest on this. I, I was like, yeah, you don't, but it, but if they go bankrupt, I, and I said these words exactly. And he messaged me and he was like, yeah, you told me about this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said, but if they go bankrupt, you will not, 
your money is that won't be yours. That is that will be in their bankruptcy procedure proceedings or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, and so he was like, no, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to make interest on it. And the, the guy who started, it's a billionaire. So it'll probably be okay. And, uh, all that sort of stuff. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm not going to force you to do it, but I think this is a bad idea. You should at least transfer some of it out. And he did transfer a little bit out. Um, but of course about a month later, cause I was out there last month. Wow. Uh, uh, working with him on this stuff about a month later, they go, uh, he, go, he goes, uh, you watching the news on BlockFi? And I was like, no, not really. I saw the news on FTX. And he went, yes, that's having a BlockFi. I can't get my money out. Wow. And I was like, man. It's full coiner, too. Wow. So, Gosh, yeah. damn. Yeah. And, but you know what? I think, I think it'll be okay. I think this is a good learning experience for him. But, yeah. You got to touch the stove sometimes. Yeah. And, and also, it's that. And also, um, it's, the the interest so in the mindset that he had and, and i don't think he has the the correct mindset yet either is the mindset that he had was he's going to get this bitcoin the bitcoin's going to go up to five hundred thousand dollars a coin or whatever he's going to sell the coin he's going to have fiat and then he's going to spend it on whatever the hell he wants to spend on right right yeah. that is the bad it's not the right mindset so yeah that's <laughs> like, not so, the game yeah, I've been trying to tell him that. As I, I was like, no, eventually, it's not that it's going to be worth a million dollars. It's that in the future, you will be able to pay. You, if you want like a beer and a beer is two dollars, it'll be two sats in the future, and but you'll have all of these sats, and so you'll be able to transition in. Whereas your dollars will be worth nothing. Yeah, and uh, and I think that that's still sort of like conceptually, he's having a hard time with that. Is and it's like. I, I get it because we do, I, and I, I fully do as well. I still operate in dollars. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gone zero like uh, Rollo wants us to. Uh, but so I do get it. Whereas, and, and I've also cashed out Bitcoin before. Like like uh, two years ago, I had to pay, I, I had to pay a bunch of taxes to the IRS. So I cashed out Bitcoin to pay it. And yeah. uh, now I'd rather have the Bitcoin, but, you know, I also would rather not owe money to the, the IRS. Jail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, so that, I think that's kind of where we're going right now is I think that I'm really hoping that there's not a total war. I think that the Americans, I think one advantage that we have as millennials is that we did go through Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that, um, our generation is done with war. Uh, like it's just, I, hope it, so. I, I really hope so. Maybe I'm this wishful thinking, but like the anytime, and I see this on like Twitter and stuff too. Anytime anybody suggests that the United States is going to war, even people that I completely disagree with are like, no. Uh, like this actually, the, the first time I saw this happen was in 2014. I was very, very involved in the libertarian movement back then. And Obama was trying to go send ground troops to Syria. Now he ended up doing it anyways, but it wasn't as big of a war because everybody came out and went, no, we've been in, in Iraq for, at that point, we'd been in Iraq for 10 years and we'd been in Afghanistan for 12 and people our age were gone. No, we don't want this anymore. We're like this, we're tired of this. And then, you know, people whose parents were in the military, like my dad, like, you know, he was gone for my entire high school experience yeah um, i think he was he was in the united states for one year during that and there are a lot of kids that are like that where uh 
this it's it's they're fatigued uh, like it, it's a weird it's a weird way to say it war fatigue but it's like it's just they're tired of of that so i don't really think that and again this may be wishful thinking on on my part because i am very anti-war but uh, i don't think it's going to be a physical war thing I, I think there will be physical wars as the united states continues to contract and and move back into its borders but um I think this is going to be a financial revolution is I think that mm-hmm. what people are most pissed off about nowadays is the financial raw deal that we've been dealt is yeah. that our money is not real. Our, we know it's not real. We feel it. We're not getting ahead at all. Um, some of, some of us are doing okay, but like it's, it's a struggle and we're not building I, I don't know anybody my age who expects that they're going to retire. I guess that's sort of the wow. That's sort of the kind of concept is where I think most of the people that <coughs> I work with that are my age kind of know Social Security is not going to be around for them, and the their four hundred and one k just doesn't really build big enough. And I think that's sort of starting to get people interested in Bitcoin. And I think that's sort of what's going to be the sort of the catalyst is that when Bitcoin finally matures and becomes its becomes the currency is that we'll, we'll be moving into our highest productivity years as, as uh, earners, which Mm -hmm. is usually 40 plus. Um, And during those years when Bitcoin becomes the money, just it, it'll be like back when gold was around you could just put the gold in your safe or you could put gold wherever you're going to put gold but it's going to be even easier because you can secure your own bitcoin but um you'll basically be able to put that away during your highest earning potential and retire on that yeah uh and that i think is that's our golden age is that with sound money a, a shift in mindset from high time preference to low time preference, uh, which will build institutions that will last into the future. Um, I think the, the low time the, or the high time preference mindset uh, that has been basically all of the generations really since the greatest generation, the greatest generation, I think, had the lower time preference mindset because they went through the depression. Uh, and so they sort of had this sort of scarcity mindset where they're yeah. like, oh, we do need, we need to save, we need to conserve and, and that sort of stuff. But then the other generations, they lived through these highs where the government could run these huge deficits. And then, and the, and then the greatest generation took advantage of this as well, where like, they were like, look, we're going to just continue to spend on ourselves and on our kids. Cause we and, can. Yeah. Cause we can, and we're rich. But, um, I think when we, we're going to, th- I think that this golden age is much more like the gilded age, uh, for, uh, this is going to be like the new gilded age. It's basically, it's going to be innovation, sound money, sound money really spurs on innovation and correct investment. So, for sure. uh, so I think that's what we're going into sustainable, uh, agriculture, not like the bugs, but like actually <laughs> permaculture, like, baby. Uh, yeah. Like legit permaculture where people are going to be pound for pound growing more food, having, no more phthalates in their food, no more potassium bromide in their bread. None of these wow. industrial waste products that are mixed in with like, these are, this is all fiat stuff. This is yep. like, this is garbage that comes out of the factory. And because of the whole fiat system, you got to mix that into the food to make some extra money and, and make the food cheaper so that people don't notice that their, their wealth is being inflated away. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> 
so there'll be healthier people, smarter people, people we're already living longer. Uh, we're going to be living even longer. And then when the government is out of the way, especially on like longevity. So this is, this is me getting into my, uh, my old age. I, like I, I fully expect I'm going to live into my two hundreds. So this is going, I've to been saying of, 130 for 15 yeah. years. Oh yeah. I, 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 I'm so, so what's interesting is that for every year that you live, you add on three months to your life expectancy and that's accelerating. So, um, so it, you, so five years ago for every year that you lived, you added two months on to your life expectancy. Um, but it's accelerating because our healthcare is getting better, uh, or our ability, it's not our healthcare is getting better. Our ability <laughs> to manage, um, chronic conditions. Yeah. Chronic conditions is better. So, so for every, so a lot of things that would kill you 50 years ago, won't kill you now. Um, and now, when the FDA is out of the way, because the government's going to end up contracting as well, I think um, they just mm -hmm. won't be able to be as large as they are currently. When we return to a sound money system, they'll, there's going to be better research. So there, there is a company that does this now, and I can't remember what they're called, but they do. It's basically bounties where they will, uh, they do what the FDA does, but they do it on a bounty. So you you would say like, let's say that you want um, you want to test out whether uh, metformin. What, what is, you know, so metformin has all these, this is a longevity medication, but it's used for diabetes, but they, they've shown like an all cause mortality reduction if you take metformin. So mm -hmm. I, I take metformin, but, uh, it's, uh, so if you were like, I want this to be studied because there's also a side effect on metformin, which is that while you're taking it, you increase the likelihood that if you have male children, they will have uh, genital birth defects. So, Ooh. um, I don't have any kids and I'm not planning to have any kids <laughs> right, right away. So I don't mind taking it. Uh, cause I think it's going to, uh, it's going to just keep me healthier. It helps regulate your blood sugar. It also shows, I think it's a 20% reduction in all cause mortality for people who take wow. metformin. Um, so anyways, so things like this, where people will be like, I want to study this because the thing is there's, there's been very limited studies on the side effects for it because it's the only thing the FDA approves it for is diabetes, but we know that it, it does all these other things as well, just anecdotally from the sample size. Okay. So uh, the same thing with like, uh, you know, this is, this is a big controversy that's going around right now is the uh, ivermectin, you know, the FDA is now saying that they never said that you weren't supposed to take that. Oh my God. It's not true. I, I, I can show all the news articles where <laughs> yeah. they talk to you, the FDA, and you said, don't take it because it's horse paste. And, uh, but it had to be ordered from India. Like I know yep. multiple people that ordered it from India. Yep. Yep. And I do too. And, and I still get stuff. I still get medication from India. First of all, it's cheaper. Uh, so like I'll get, I'll, if I, if I'm like, okay, I want to get like, so, uh, you know, uh, it's a, is it Theraflu? What, whatever the prescription version of that is, uh, it's an antiviral. So they were saying, they were saying that there's going to be a shortage of antivirals this winter. And so I was like, oh, this sounds like a setup. So I went on to the, the Indian website and ordered a whole bunch of the generic brand of the antiviral because I was like, oh, if, if, if there's a virus going to go around, like it's not that I don't believe that COVID existed. I just didn't really believe it was a threat to me. But if there right. is some virus going around, I'd rather be able to take Theraflu if that's going to be what they're going to prescribe me anyways. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also it's because it's a it's a it's such a widely used medication. We know it has very limited side effects. Whereas like 
on the other hand, so you could have taken this and you would have, you would have likely beat COVID very easily. Yeah. Or you could take this vaccine or what they're calling a vaccine and you could have all of these potential complications. Now they're, they're, the complications are not, um, I don't, I don't like, I don't, I don't want to be an alarmist about it because like the thing is it, the complications are rare. However, they're not less rare than complications of a young person dying from COVID. So you're increasing your risk of some sort of health deficit. And, and also I'm not convinced either that the, I, I, I really think that this guy, uh, Pete, uh, Peter, uh, David Martin, Dr. David Martin, uh, he's a, he's actually a statistician who goes through this. He estimates that by the end of the decade, there'll be 700 million people dead from the vaccine. Wow. And the way that he extrapolates this is it's going to be miscarriages as, as he thinks a lot of it's going to be miscarriages. Um, but in addition to that, it's going to be that uh, the, the repeated boosters. So, and, and a lot of countries are already stopped are already saying we're not doing the repeated boosters. Uh, they, they did it for four or five and then they're going like, Oh shit. Like we're seeing bad side effects. And mm -hmm. again, it, it's not that many, but cumulatively it does add up. Right. And, and still, I went to the, the VAERS website, uh, I guess it would have been about this time last year. And it is just an atrocious website to try to get data from. Yeah. But I was able to run the, um, I don't remember the, the exact words, but basically deaths of all vaccines versus deaths of just the COVID vaccines and then negative side effects comparing the two of them. And for last year, the reported side effects and deaths for just the COVID vaccines were greater than all other vaccines yeah. within that time period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I think that they're very, very quickly changing their tune on this. Uh, I, and you sort of see it in real time that like, they're starting to come out and sit like, so I think this is one of the reasons why that whole amnesty thing came out where they were like, mm -hmm. we should have amnesty. It's like, no, because you know that, that all cause mortality. So in countries that have, uh, that have uh, had wide vaccination like Germany or Austria or Israel, all cause mortality in people under 30 is through the roof. I, wow. I, young people don't die like this and right and they are suddenly dying of stroke and heart attacks and blood clots and these types of weird things and it's and again like i, I really don't want to be like too alarmist on it but because it's it's still a small percentage but it's a larger percentage than the people that were our age that were going to die from covid right that's that's by a long by a long by shot a even lot, though both yeah. numbers are relatively small yeah like i, I think they were saying like for so like I think it was Israel, but I could be getting the wrong. They were saying it was like one in 800 kids that got the vaccine died. Wow. But it was one in 100,000 that got COVID died. Yeah. So it's like, so when you compare the numbers, one in one in 800 or one in 900 or, or whatever it was, it's not that much. It, it is still extremely rare, but it's a lot more common than one in 100,000. Absolutely. So, uh, and so, so this is, I think what kind of the era that we're kind of, we're going to go through. So sort of to bring it back to the Strauss Howe generational theory is we're actually only about halfway through the fourth turning based on their projections. And in a lot of his more recent interviews, he's actually extending it out further, uh, because of, uh, how the generations are living now. So okay. 
So when he originally wrote the book, he didn't expect there to be like a Nancy Pelosi in office as long as she was in office. Sure. So so actually when he wrote the book, I think she had just gotten elected. Yeah. So she, yeah, she's been, say, it's she been about that long. Yeah. And that was 25 years ago. Um, so his expectation of how long the people that are shaping the so uh, and, and this is the other thing too is that a lot of their theory revolves around the government so yeah um and if you look at his interviews too he's he's also he's very uh very statist he's he's got a, a, that sort of mentality he's much more very different than you and i i think what, what, what we would kind of think about when it comes to government because he sees conformity and like um well the way he sees a lot of this stuff coming out is being like a large government so like the 1950s government where like yep. people were more communally focused i think that i think that we will be more communally focused but i think in a different way i think it'll be decentralized yeah, yeah voluntary and decentralized um but so uh i sort of lost my train of thought on that but um so in his more recent interviews he's been saying that because these generations are staying in their role for an extended period of time it basically stretches everything out so the millennials stayed in their adolescence way longer than expected when yeah. he wrote the book so when he wrote the book it was 97 i was 10 uh i was 10 or nine, nine or 10 so yeah, i was two uh, and so then uh so the millennials uh, like i know a lot of my friends who lived with their parents until they were close to 30. Wow. so um, I probably would have lived with my parents into my thirties as well because I liked it. Like I had no problem with it. Whereas sure. like one of the things that they, that they differentiated was that boomers wanted nothing to do with their parents. Okay. Millennials have no problem with their parents. They get along with them quite well. Yeah. Um, and they're, and they're happy to live with them for a long time. And, and there was a lot of advantages to living with my parents. It was, I didn't have to pay rent. My mom did my laundry for me. Sure. Um, <laughs> She even cleaned my bedroom for me sometimes. So like, so I just worked and then came home. And the downside is it's hard to date when you live with your parents. Uh, right. or it's awkward to date when you live with your parents. Um, so that sort of thing. But so that all of those types of things extended out. So I was lucky that my parents ended up moving and I was, I was still uh, in school when they moved. And so it didn't make sense for me to move with them, but that kind of forced me to move out. Yeah. And, uh, but a lot of my friends at the time still lived with their parents and lived with their parents for many, many more years. Wow. Uh, and so, and, and then a lot of them also, they call it boomeranging. So um, the kids moved out and they moved back in with their parents or they moved in with their grandparents or something like that. So okay. um, that was very common, especially after 2008, like that. So I moved out of my parents' house in 2007 uh, and then, or Actually, I was probably it was actually probably 2008. It was probably 2008. I moved out of their house, and then um, the when the crisis happened, they had moved. They had already moved to Hawaii, and but a lot of my friends had moved out. Actually, my my roommate had moved out, li lived with me, and then the crisis happened, lost his job, and he ended up moving in with his grandparents. So I had to get a different roommate. So it was so a lot of those types of situations. Uh, extended the millennial adolescence also mm -hmm. the financial situation made it so that boomers worked longer um they put off retirement now they're starting to retire in much bigger numbers but there, there's a lot of boomers that are still working and they're not interested in retiring um 
and then uh but because they didn't move out that uh, of the workforce that sort of delayed gen x from moving into those positions so now there's like a lot of things that are just sort of delayed yeah and and that sort of pushes it out yeah so so now he's kind of saying in a lot of his interviews that that this crisis period is probably going to be over later than they originally anticipated i think originally they said it was like 2025 now they're kind of thinking 2030 2032 somewhere around that yeah that's about what i had heard um 2029 was the number that was that was floating that i'd been seeing yeah so, so he had an interview. Uh, do you know Danielle DiMartino Booth? No. So she's uh, like a Fed insider, they call her. She used to work at the Dallas Fed. Um, okay. Interesting lady. Uh, uh, in some ways aligns with like my thoughts, and uh, but in a lot of ways is very Fed oriented. So, uh, and, and so is so is How. So How does a lot of financial advising as well. Uh, so he's, he's very much involved in the financial stuff, but he, she interviewed him, uh, three or four days ago on her show and, um, really interesting interview. And it was like, I was, I thought it was kind of serendipitous because we, you and I were going to talk about the book. And so he said, he's actually writing a new version of it with sort of some updates and stuff. But in that he kind of goes through like what he thinks is going to be happening. He's very crypto skeptic. Uh, so, so it's actually, yeah. So is Peter Zion. Um, a lot of these people are kind of like, well, Bitcoin doesn't make any sense, but it, I don't think it makes sense to them. But it's kind of one of those things, too, is I'm sure when people were trading, you know, deer skins or whatever, and some guy was like, here, I got the shiny piece of gold. And they were like, <laughs> what's that? And like, but it takes it takes some time for people to adapt. It's probably going to take less time now, but right. um, I think that's I think that's kind of where we're going. Now, I do I, one thing that I sort of differentiate around with like a lot of the Bitcoin maximalist is i do think that gold's going to have a, a major role i think a lot of countries are going to try to go back to some sort of gold standard and i think that's going to sort of continue a little bit of the fiat for maybe longer than we expect but i okay. think for international i think for international settlement so you you kind of see this is that there is something going on in the gold and silver markets right now is that central banks are just buying a bunch of it uh you know all of the central banks and okay. um and then like Russia, because of the sanctions aren't allowed to export it. And they're one of the largest exporters of gold in the world. And huh. so, so they're basically their central bank just stepped in and said, okay, well, we'll just buy it. Yeah. So, we're stockpiling now, bitches. Yeah. And so, and that's, and that, that's sort of what's going on. So mm-hmm. I can see some sort of a, some sort of like quasi gold standard with international settlement in Bitcoin. Okay. Because that's the other thing too, is it's been, there's, it's already proof of concept is it costs almost nothing to settle multi-million dollars on on bitcoin yeah it's like it's like fractions of a penny but to settle it in traditional means is expensive it's slow you can do that you can you can send a billion dollars to russia in 20 minutes on on chain and uh but it takes days to send so we, we still do business with russians my my wife and i um and uh because Visa and MasterCard and all of those have shut down, PayPal doesn't allow us to pay there anymore. We just switched to paying in Bitcoin. And uh, it's cheap. A lot of them accept it on Lightning now. So it's, nice. it's, it's even cheaper on Lightning. It's fast. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier. to. And it's kind of like one of those things where like when you start actually doing a real case scenario, you're kind of like, oh, this is actually way easier than logging into PayPal, connecting your credit card, trying to transfer it or whatever. It's just, it's, just it's easy 
It's so, just new to most people. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. but you know what? But, but PayPal used to be new to people too. I remember exactly. when I first, when I actually in 2008, when I uh, had my first full-time job, my boss wanted to buy something online and he came and because I was their programmer, which also apparently to him translates to IT professional. Uh, <laughs> he, he was like, Hey, I want to buy this thing. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I don't have PayPal and I don't want to put my credit card on the internet. I was like, okay, well give me, give me money and I'll buy it for you. <laughs> but like that, I mean, that's kind of what it is. I think we're at that sort of point where it's like, people are still trying to figure out how to pay in Bitcoin and stuff. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that's making it easier. The lightning network has really basically solved any of the other problems that there are. Like you can pay faster on lightning than you can with a credit card now. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive. There's been, there's a lot of really great use case scenarios where they just sort of show like in Ecuador, it's working for them. Or, or is it Ecuador or is it uh, El Salvador? El Salvador. El Salvador. Um, that like it's working there and people are able to do it. So I think this is kind of where we're going is that I do think there's going to be quite a bit more pain over the next 10 years. For sure. But um, I think that we're going to come out on the other side. We're going to be able to hopefully avoid war. It, that's that's my main my main hope is mm -hmm. that we'll be able to avoid war and we'll win the the conflict of money and that is that's the crisis of our era at least the way i see it the crisis of the of the greatest generations era was uh was form of government were we going to be dictator dictator systems or were we going to be liberal democracies right and and really the the, the question was set up at the end of world war one when they when they were like it was decided okay we're not doing monarchies that's right. that's out we're gonna now it's kind of now it's is it communism is it fascism is it western style democracy like what is it going to be and they sort of solved that with a a war well we we're in a new era we don't need to blow each other up to solve the financial problems and, and and frankly i don't think that i don't think the world is is prepared for that type of war anymore i think it's uh like i got like i said i i don't think the americans have the mindset for for a world war ii type thing however i do think that we have the mindset for a financial conflict which mm -hmm. is is that and it's going to be a decentralized conflict it's not the united states government versus everybody else i think it's it's the normal people in the United States seeing that their money is, I mean, by their own metrics, we're losing 8% of our value uh, annually right now. Yeah. So like, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Annually. Yeah. Based it, it, on the rosiest of numbers. Yeah, right. So, and, and I, and all those numbers are bullshit. Yeah. So we know, we know it's 16 or 17% easily. Yeah. Um, and so, I think Americans are going to start seeing that and the, the conflict is going to be uh, money. It's going to be what, what is our, what is our future going to be? Uh, you know, I don't have kids yet, but I want to have kids. And I know a lot of people my age want to have kids and they want the world that their kids are going to be set up to be a safe, a safe monetary system. And because our crisis is defined by the, great financial crisis i think it's going to be a monetary a, mo a monetary conflict whereas sure. although although i think that maybe the start of the previous crisis was a monetary crisis it really was set up by world war one mm. uh, and that's kind of ours maybe was set up by i 
maybe it was set up by uh 9-11 war of terror yeah but 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 if you think too it's like 9-11 was not even it wasn't just the war on terror this is something also people forget about that was also the dot-com bubble burst yeah which was yeah, financially was. devastating to a ton of people yeah um so i think that this is kind of we've we've our generation is going through if you look at the way our conflict has been setting up is we we have had these sort of wars in the background that have literally have have impacted us quite a bit i mean like a lot of a lot of people our age come back from these wars they've got a lot of problems and the government is not there to give them a solution right um bringing and, the, that military technology back home to domestic policing as well yeah yeah exactly so so and so a lot of this is they can't leave the war uh yeah. because it's it's still here but then also they come back and all of these things that they were promised, I mean, they, they're very, very much lied to by recruiters is that all of these things that they were promised are gone in an instant because of monetary policy. And so I think that this is kind of one of the reasons why we see so many vets who come back are becoming libertarians is they, they kind of, they, they, first of all, they see the, uh, the futility of war, like how ridiculous it is. And also the lies that have been uh, propagated around their particular war so iraq and afghanistan mm -hmm. but then also they see when they come back that they don't have a peace dividend they they don't um their any savings that they have are, are basically decimated and eroded and they have been every single crisis so we had the 2008 crisis and then the recovery and the recovery wasn't great no for most people uh right. it was it was a great stock market recovery but for like regular working Joes, there, there's a reason why Trump won in 2016 is like that recovery was not a recovery that really helped most normal people. So, right. so this entire millennial generation has been going through just financial crisis. It's financial crisis after financial. So we had, so in our very, very younger days, we, well, actually maybe in my, in my super young days, we had, I was born in 87. So we had the stock market crash then. So, and then you had the dot-com bubble burst. And then you had the 2008 financial crisis, and then you had the shitty recovery for a bunch of years. Then you had a small boom during the Trump era for two years, then another financial crisis that was then capstoned by COVID. Yep. And now we're about to go into another financial crisis. It's like so yeah. we're, we're we're right now we're having the same problem. So I really think that what has defined this era of crisis is is financial issues, and so I think the solution is. A revolution in, mon in in monetary systems which is which will be bitcoin i think so yeah uh, and i'm pretty confident of it i like i'm 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 staking my life savings on it so <laughs> yeah same same yeah so uh, hopefully hopefully that's the case I, I mean i think that um for anybody who wants to hear a better explanation for it safedine is his podcast is excellent he's got a really good uh a really good way of selling it i think and also yeah. explaining why it's not just a sales it's just it's it's reality so yeah um that's what i really think that our crisis mm -hmm. is going to end with that is that is that will the golden age will happen when at least when there's a parallel of bitcoin and and semi-backed fiat currencies like i i don't i don't really see a lot of these going away like like china i don't think is going to last a decade that's one of the things that peter zion talks about but while they're still around they're not giving up their currency but even in the meantime they are stockpiling silver and gold as well so they want and actually this this was interesting news today is that they basically nationalized their uh 
uh, real estate <laughs> industry. Oh, wow. So, uh, because like that was, you know, I don't know if you were following it too closely, like that whole Evergrande crisis. Yeah, um, yeah. So basically what the government did is they came in and said, basically, this is like halfway nationalized now. So basically you do what you want to do, but you're going to finish these houses or else you'll be executed. Damn. And you don't have to pay any of your debts right now. Pay them later. And that's going to be actually quite bad for the dollar because Evergrande had uh, about a third of its debt denominated in dollars. So there's wow. a lot of there was a lot of American institutions relying on or expecting payment in dollars based on these loans that they were giving out to China for mm -hmm. these ridiculous, unrealistic growth growth expectations. So so again, this is all stuff that's brewing that is financial, and so this is a and this is all because of the U.S. monetary system. So yeah. this is, I think, what's kind of, kind of coming to a climax is this is financial war. And um, I don't think we're going to have, I think we'll have minor conflicts, but I don't think we're going to have total war like World War One or World War Two. I think we're going to have probably wars sort of like what's going on in Ukraine, proxy wars where we're willing to put fiat into it. But at a certain point, we're not going to be even wanting to put fiat into it because Americans are going to go, yeah, we're not using this money anymore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that making sense. Huh? Anything else? <laughs> <clears throat> I think you've hit everything. I mean, I didn't even have to ask any questions. This is like Scott Horton. I just say a couple words and let you go. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about it the last week because I, I missed That's our awesome. I missed our call last week. And I was like, uh, I started thinking about it more. And I was like, okay, actually, I do have a lot of stuff to say about it. Yeah, no, um, it shows it. I, I'm, I'm impressed with your eloquence and just like the ability to jump just continue the thoughts and, and trace them along a path. Uh, I don't talk out loud often enough to have that skill. <laughs> yeah. I I'm on the phone a lot with clients. So I I've, I've, uh, I've started getting, getting better at it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let me see. Um, if there's something. I want to see if there's something else that I kind of remember there was one more thing on your notes. Okay, no, we, we did cover that. That was on um, like basically world policing, and then oh, mm -hmm. uh, I guess I mean I guess we did cover how we're going to get out of the crisis. I, I think, and and actually, you have it as Bitcoin here. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that's I mean that's what I think. I think that I think that's the way out is um, is so. This is one of the things too. Uh, uh, very briefly, is that the reason I think this is more of like a a return to a, a new gilded age is that the new the gilded age was defined by solid gold standards internationally this was so the gilded age kind of was initiated in when after napoleon was defeated the germans were able to accept war reparations in either silver or gold and they sort of looked at the international system and they decided we're going to go to gold because the british had already switched to it and the Americans at the time were also on a silver a silver standard. Up until uh, the late 1800s, the United States was was on silver, um, and so there was there was a the Silver Act, I think it was that the, the government would buy silver at a certain price. That's why that's one of the reasons why Montana and Colorado and, and Nevada all opened up uh, during the west, westward expansion because there was so much silver there. So at by the time that Napoleon was defeated and the, and the war reparations were being finalized and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and go on to gold. And so basically the world, there was no longer this competing silver and gold standards. The world decided 
all the world that mattered, at least for the West, uh, decided we're on gold. And that is what sort of initiated the greatest technological expansion and innovation of um, up until that point mm-hmm. is, is that, and, you know, people complain about the industrial revolution, but it lifted so many people out of poverty. Uh, you, you know, the world changed. And, and, and this is something too, is like, we, we shouldn't expect things not to change. Um, you know, the future, the Bitcoin future is going to be a hard many standard. Things will be different. Um, For sure. There's going to be a lot of people but, get burned. Yeah, a lot of people will. And but but ultimately, just like in the Gilded Age, it will benefit people so enormously that, uh, you know, we'll probably have like the Upton Sinclairs and that sort of stuff writing, <laughs> writing the jungle and saying how bad and all that sort of stuff it is. But mm-hmm. overall, like, you know, our negative view of the robber barons, I think, is unfounded is like these industrial powerhouses really revolutionized the world. They extended people's life expectancy. Um, you know, it, it led to the modern era and the Gilded Age. And I think we're going to go into a new Gilded Age, which is the the basically the building on and expanding what we already have now, um, but with hard money so that there's not so much malinvestment and a lot less of these crashes that, you know, even even in a hard money system, there are crashes, but they're short lived and they and they don't cause as much pain. Right. So it's really interesting with the timing of what Neil Howe sees as the the end of the crisis, even though he's very Bitcoin skeptical. Because I don't really I don't get into Bitcoin price predictions, uh, yeah. but Brian Norton turned me on to this uh, model. Um, I don't remember what the name of it was, but basically any any like all the past technological adoptions have followed this S curve. Mm-hmm. It's like it takes us long for the first 10% of people to adopt technology as it does for the next 80% or 85% mm-hmm. or whatever to get to yeah. basically the plateau. Yeah. And so far Bitcoin is following that curve looking to peak about 2030. Yeah. To where it off. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, that makes sense. I think, and I really think that's where it's going to go. I, I don't, I was talking to car about this uh, not too long ago is like it, like to me, every problem and objection that I had back in 2012 has been resolved and solved. I don't really see any other issues. Um, I think everything is, they obviously improvements can be made, but um, I think lightning has basically solved everything that was, that I saw as a, a problem with payment. And, uh, and as lightning network expands and gets better, then uh, it'll just, it'll just be, it'll be even, even, even better. <laughs> that, Absolutely. So yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think that we're, we're there. It's just, it's going to be an adoption thing. It's sort of like, you know, uh, my dad was a very early adopter of the internet. So I don't actually, I barely remember when we didn't have internet because uh, we got it in 92. Uh, so I do remember though, that in 92, we had a computer and I used to write papers on the computer. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would use the internet for research. It was right then back then it was in Carta, so that you could really that was the only thing that you could. There wasn't much on the internet, but there was an encyclopedia online that you could use. So, okay. but I remember that was impressive that I could type papers and that I had internet access and internet resources for papers all the way until just before I graduated high school, and then it became normal. Wow. So uh, it's, it's weird to think about because maybe 2004 ish, like that was kind of when people were like, 
everybody basically had a computer at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a very long time. So I think that sort of the S curve is what you're talking about is 92 was not the advent of the internet. The internet had been around for a while, but it really took all of the nineties to get people online. Yep. And, uh, but then like, just think about the innovations too. If you think about like the innovations that Bitcoin has had and, and sort of the, sort of the comparison to the internet, we had dial up, we had the 16 K, which was like the trashiest modems, then, then the 56 K modems, then DSL. And then it was DSL cable. Like, I, I mean, it just, it's DSL came out. I remember we got DSL installed and then instantly cable was better. And we got, <laughs> and we got cable. Like it was, it was so fast. Yeah. Exponential. And then it was just, yeah. And then Wi-Fi, and then like, blah, 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 blah. it was like, I mean, and I think, and that's sort of what Bitcoin sort of feels like it's going through is I got first, first introduced to Bitcoin back in 2012, um, by, uh, uh, Rick Caldwell or, um, not Mike Caldwell, who he's the guy who invented the, I have one around here somewhere, the, the, the physical Bitcoin that had like the peel off. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, sure. uh, so he and I worked together for a little while, uh, he used to own a timekeeping company that um, that worked with the company that I worked for. And um, so he first introduced me to it. And I, and I remember back then him explaining it to me and me just kind of going, I don't get it. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter if you get it or not, just buy some. And I was like, eh, I'm, I'm, I'll buy silver. And uh, so I bought, I bought $2,000 worth of silver. And I think I bought maybe 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin. And, Bitcoin went from, I think it was, I think it was like under $5 at the time. And mm -hmm. it went up to like 40 bucks. And I was like, oh my gosh, so sell. <laughs> I was like, this not, it doesn't make any sense to me. Sell. <clears throat> and then, <throat> and then it went up to 250. And I was like, oh crap, I missed the boat. Then it crashed back down to like 50. And then I, I was like, well, maybe I'll get some more. And I, and I bought a little bit, but at the time this was actually, this was, it used to be a lot harder to set up wallets. Um, yeah. So I had all of my money on Gox. And wow. uh, so I had all my Bitcoin on Gox and then Gox overnight disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, all my Bitcoin was gone. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't want to do this. And then um, the last the last big crash at the beginning of COVID when it went down to 4,000, I was like, you know what? I've listened to enough Rollo. I've, I've read the Bitcoin standard now. I still had some problems with the Bitcoin standard, like things that like I was like, I, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I was like, I've been wrong every single time <laughs> I sold this. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go ahead and just keep accumulating. And then over time, after I started accumulating and started listening more, Rollo, I think, has been very influential to me and Carr. Um, just kind of the more I've like listened to them, the more I've read about it. A, a lot of the Safe Dean's podcasts and stuff like that. I went, mm -hmm. This is actually this is like borderline divine. Like this is like God's intervention in the world <laughs> to some degree because it really does solve, um, it solves a lot of of the evils of fiat. Like I mean, like yeah. like I can't really think of any other way to do it. And it also has like sort of a miraculous. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about it to me is that it can use waste energy and transfer that waste energy from a location wirelessly to a location. Yeah, which to me is, I mean, that's it's it. You know how they always say like um, te uh, technology that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. From magic. Yeah. Yeah. This is sort of what it is. It's like you can burn gas in an oil, ref a flare in a fracking mine in the middle of West Texas. It takes eight hours to drive out to. 
and transmit that over satellite to Dallas. It, it's insane. Yeah. Like that, I, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, it's, it's like, it's, so it's like bizarre. the philosopher's stone. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's turning coal into diamonds. Yeah, it, it really is. Cause I mean, cause they're going to burn the stuff up. That's why I think actually one of the things that's, uh, we'll leave on this note cause I got to walk my dogs and stuff. But, uh, one of the things I think is interesting about what's going on in, in Russia is because of the sanctions, they are actually having to flare off a lot more gas, uh, than they were before. They used to just pipe it into Europe. Right. But now because of a lot of the issues, they're flaring off a lot more. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, they're not stupid. They, and they, and they're not oblivious to Bitcoin. They could end up becoming a Bitcoin mining powerhouse because Absolutely. Bitcoin is, is about to, if the price continues down, it's about, it's it because of price of energy has gone up and Bitcoin prices come down. The cost to mining ratio is, um, going to be out of whack here shortly. Right. There's so, miners getting wrecked left and right right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, but places like Russia where they don't have the ability because of state stuff to export it, they can transfer, they can convert that energy into Bitcoin and then transfer that Bitcoin out yeah. and there's, and nobody can stop them. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it's kind of an amazing, it, it's really, it's, it's an amazing new world. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's miraculous. It's also, you know, one of, one of the things that Ron Paul always said is that when goods cross borders, troops don't. Troops don't. And yeah. when Bitcoin starts crossing borders and it monetizes, people won't want to send troops in anymore. Absolutely. So, there we go. Uh, A good hopeful note. I knew we'd get yeah. there once we got to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Plug uh, Childerberg Tasting Anarchy. That's right. So go to Childerberg.com. Um, we're going to have a new location. There's a newsletter sign up there. I'm going to try to have a new, uh, new newsletter out this weekend that kind of explains like where the new location is going to be. Um, Tasting Anarchy is a show that I do that we do wine and um, wine and beer reviews. Mostly our, our slogan is how much government is in your drink. So we mostly talk about government intervention in the alcohol industry. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I've been getting one or two out per month the last couple of months I've, I've been, I've been slacking quite a bit, but, uh, but we're getting back on track. Good deal. And all my links going across the banner at the bottom right now, lsd.ittybitty.tips. That's my little tip tree. Um, a buddy, Josh, the renegade butcher makes those. It's basically link tree, but it's also got lightning enabled tipping. Um, so if you go there, you get, there's a QR code that pops up. You can leave a tip and it's also got all my socials, the, Revolution Solution podcast website, RSS feed, uh, my few referral links that nobody's ever clicked. Um, so just type it into a search engine and check it out. If you want one made, just hit up Josh the Renegade Butcher or go to itty-bitty-tips and ask for one. Cool. Yeah, that's all I got. Jake, I really appreciate it. This has been incredibly interesting. Yeah, it's been fun. I always like talking about this kind of thing. Hell yeah. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Peace and love. Take it easy.